Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, you're joined here by your boy, Heavy Days, here from the Upside Down Library. And as usual, we want to give a massive shout out to our incredible sponsors who help make the show happen. Guys, I know you love seeds here now, but guess what? They're taking it up yet another level. They've got a whole bunch of amazing celebrations and promos coming up over the month of February. Celebrating Groundhog Day, Valentine's Day, Presidential Day. And to kick it all off for the whole month of February, they're celebrating pineapple. That's right, a range of different pineapple flavored strains across the site, 20% off. Be sure to get in on the fun at Seeds Here Now. All of the hottest breeders, the latest drops. Shout out Seeds Here Now, we appreciate your support so much. But in order to get your garden producing the best crop to date, you gotta make sure your room's dialed in. To do that, check out our friends at Pulse Sensors, number one sensors and integrated hubs in the game, measuring all of the variables, PPD, VPD, temperature, humidity, dew point, all the extra variables you don't consciously track to help ensure your next crop is the best to date. Whether you're running a single tent, a single room, or a multi-state operation, Pulse Sensors are the number one in the game, and they've just recently released the Pulse Hub, a central unit to integrate all of their monitors to make sure that your rooms are the best they can possibly be. Massive thank you to Pulse Sensors. We appreciate you so much. Likewise, you've got to keep your garden pest and pathogen free. And to do that, you've got to check out our friends at Copit. These guys are the world leaders in sustainable biocontrol solutions for pests and disease. If you're battling spider mites, check out their new Spidex Vital Plus sachets. These are new Persimilis breeding sachets that release predator mites into your crop consistently over a period of several weeks, providing you with sustained spider mite control. Now you don't have to spread carrier material through your garden just to introduce predator mites. Just hang the sachets on your crop, let the Persimilis walk out and do the work for you. Trust me guys, you don't want to have to go up against a spider mite infestation without Spidex Vital Plus. These are truly the best predators in the game. I promise once you use it, you'll see the quality, you'll never go back. Massive shout out to Copet. Likewise, you've got to check out our friends at Organics Alive. If you're growing organic and want to use high quality powdered organic fertilizers, you simply cannot go past Organics Alive. These guys truly walk the walk and talk the talk. They have been picking up cups left, right and center with growers all around the country sweeping categories using their products. That is the ultimate testament in my opinion if home growers are winning competitions using their products. The proof is in the pudding guys. No matter what stage of the plant cycle you're at, veg, transition, flower, in need of micronutrients or a very specific sort of boost in late flower, they've got it. You've got to check out Organics Alive guys. Truly one of the best in the industry. We're super stoked to be working with them because we know how amazing their products are. Used in heaps of breeder gardens that we have on the show. Again, check them out, Organics Alive. Massive thank you. Massive shout out for supporting the show. Finally, a massive shout out to the entire crew at Dynavap. These guys make some of the best vaporizers on the game. I'm really passionate about this one because they help me to get off combustion and smoking bongs. If you have any concerns about your respiratory health, or heck, if you just want to try a different mode of ingestion, maybe try to get a better flavor hit, you gotta check out the Dynavap. These guys' units are cheap, they're incredibly well designed, and most importantly, they're very customizable. You can take your vape game to the next level, getting insane terps, all while retaining the potency you'd expect of a combustion or a bong. Truly, 
I was smoking bongs for over 10 years. I'm now vape only. Massive shout out to Dynavap. They're one of the best in the industry and we owe them a massive thank you. Shout out again, Dynavap. Massive thanks for supporting the show. Finally, a quick little mention to our Patreon gang, truly the lifeblood of the show. If you want to get early access to episodes, unheard and unreleased interviews, as well as going in the running to get amazing genetics each month and fortnight, come on, check out the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the podcast. We do live smoke with heavy sessions every fortnight and give away heaps of swag every month. Come check it out. We love you, the Patreon gang. Thank you so much. We are so appreciative. And on this one today, we are stoked to be joined by none other, the owner of Wonderland Nursery, career hustler, well-known face in the NorCal area, creator of Gangier and more. A massive welcome to Kevin Jodry. Here today for an epic two-parter. Talk all things breeding, legalization, his recent trip to Pakistan, and more. So without further delay. Alrighty gang, we're back for another one. And on today, I want to give a big welcome to one of the most well-known faces in NorCal in the Mendocino area, a local legend, the man behind Wonderland Nursery, a career hustler and a true cannabis connoisseur. A big thank you to Kevin Jodry for coming on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Um, I'm really, oh, I'm really stoked to be here. Uh, we are stoked to have you on, a much-requested guest. And the first thing we've been asking guests recently, what have you been smoking on lately? What have I been smoking on? You know what I'm smoking on right now is, it's uh, 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 it's called like a, what, what do you call it? Gazo 41. It's from Gandaya's Farm, so Gabe Ruth Seeds. And it's a London pound cake to an SFV sour. So they took an SFV sour as the mayo, laid it into a London pound cake cut. And it produced a really beautiful gassy plant. And what, what I what I like is it did really well outside. And the the shape of the plant itself just lended itself to outdoor cultivation incredibly well. Just everything exposed, almost no leafing required. Uh, a little color came in at the end, but just really good, clean, nice, crisp fuel. So I've been smoking. I'm smoking the shit out of that right now. <laughs> Oh, that sounds gorgeous. And you know, shout out to Gabe. I follow his work. It seems really interesting. You you mentioned in the mix there the SFVOG. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you've probably seen more OGs than just about anyone pass through, you know, the nursery over the years. Which OG is your favorite if you had to just pick one or two? Um, that's a good question. I guess it depends on what I was doing with it. So if I wanted what I think was the the best effect of an OG, where it, it just caught me the, the best way, it would be that Topanga Canyon OG Kush. And they also call it the the Hollywood. And the the quality of the effect was just stellar. And I mean, for me, that's the one that resonated with me as a smoker best. But as a cultivator, probably the Larry Cut. The Larry Cut. It, it, it's what the market really wants as an OG and its production potential is incredible and it comes in earlier outside and it's just really a, a, an excellent plant for commercial Kush cultivation and the quality of the flower is epic. So Hollywood, Topanga for smoke, Larry for production. 
Wow, I love it. The um the Topanga or the Hollywood, you know, it's one that I feel like it doesn't really get as much of a mention as some of the others and it's to me it's got that gorgeous marshmallow sort of flavor. Really don't see it too much elsewhere. Um I'd I'd be interested to know why do you think it hasn't got quite as much traction as some of the other more commonly, you know, referenced ones? They were in really short supply and so at the end of the day almost every OG is really a, a self ghost cut josh d cut original og you know whatever we want to you know define the name as but all these variations come out and that topanga cut was just very rare and so i think the people that had it realized the the value of it and they they held it in house a lot tighter than a lot of the other cuts were the Louis Thirteenth is another rare one as well. That was held really close. And so you don't see the Louis Thirteenth cut in any big circulation. All the other OGs are floating around everywhere. You can get your hands on them pretty quick. But the Topanga and the Louis, both of those were um, guarded, so to speak. And then I got a hold of them and I shared them into the system just so the genes wouldn't be lost. So there's farmers that still run both of those, you know, in our area and out of the area, so, which is the main point of genetic preservation you got to get the plants into multiple people's hands so that at the end of the day it's still alive somewhere in clonal form yeah certainly i um i sometimes i stay awake at night and think to myself how many chemdog equivalent plants have we lost over the years just through not taking cuttings or you know a seed dying off before it could fully show its potential it's um definitely emphasizes the importance of keeping all the genetic backups you mentioned i i just had a, a little uh brain zap when you mentioned you know how certain cuts are held tightly recently on the show we've been chatting to people like yo sammy and even shanty barber and we've been talking about the c5 and the a5 a lot and lo and behold i was cruising your instagram last night and i saw you had a post about the c5 many years ago so i guess you're very familiar with it Tell me a little bit about your thoughts on the C5. We're seeing a bit of a haze resurgence. What do you like about it? Well, what I liked about the C5 was that it it just had a really euphoric, happy buzz. And when you consumed it, you kind of lost track of time, but in a giddy way. You, you were just very lighthearted and life just seemed to slow down and brighten. So it, it did have a really unique effect. And I was fortunate that I got I got cuts of it shipped out from the crew out of out of England. So I got access to the 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 real plant to play with and, and so I got to experience it. And I like it actually more than I like the A5. The A5 is a is a little more aggressive and it's fun too, just in a different way. But something about that C5 gave me a really good euphoria. And I'm and I and I'm digging that there's a resurgence on these older, older works because they, they got removed from the system for a while, mostly, you know, due to time constraints. So the world of commercial herb is so price driven, visual driven that it's very hard to show somebody a plant that looks sparse and open. That doesn't have necessarily color that has low numbers when you measure them in the way that a lab measures a plant and has a flowering time of, you know, 114 days. So that stuff just got wiped out. But in the home grower world, you're seeing this killer resurgence of it, and, and, I, and I'm digging it. 
Yeah, definitely. I feel like there's been a notable resurgence in haze and haze hybrids. I, I also feel like we're starting to see some of, you know, the land races really start to solidify themselves back in the mainstream conversation, like your Vietnameses and Colombians definitely seem to be more commonly discussed. Do you think these sort of genetics will truly make a comeback on the consumer market or is it still like a little bit just catered for the heady scene and a little bit of rosé glasses about it truly making a widespread comeback? And a little of both. You're going to get some people who discover that those profiles really resonate with them. And they'll say, hey, you know, I found something that absolutely uh, does what I want and I'll hold it and I'll grow it and I'll keep it and I'll deal with the longer cyclical time. And I will, that's, that's my definition. Kind of mean that's, if you take a look at like the PIF phenomenon in New York, which is really, a, you know, a haze, that group stayed steady for 25 years. So for a really long time, you had enough population base around an area that sold a product to sustain a specific cultivar that was difficult to grow. So if, if it can happen in New York at the level that it did, it can happen here as well. It's the, the issue is at the end of the day, can you afford to cultivate it in a legal facility and then sell it for enough money to offset the, the work? So what I see is more of hybridization where people will take the plants that are attractive today and they'll weave in what we would call land race work and, you know, indigenous work and try to bring some of the profiles, try to bring some of the exotic, try to bring the concept of scarcity and rarity into the marketing which is what people are into too, saying that, you know, never had it, never experienced it, very limited supply. When you put those words out, it, it makes people move. So I think that you're going to, you're definitely seeing it happen. You, and I don't know if it's because people are desiring to go back into the old gene pool, or if we've just played the current one out so badly that there's nothing left to work with. Because we intensified our work so heavily and, you know, in just a small genetic cluster that there's not much left really for the average individual. The genetic world that we're in, even though you can access genes better than you ever could, there's less to access. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess just to maybe clarify the point you're touching on there, do you feel that there is much room for, say, let's just use, for example, the current really, the, the, the RS11s and all these really high, you know, power sherbs, stuff like that. Do you feel like there is much room to make further or do you think it will just be a matter of time before all these breeders realize like it, it is in fact a dead end? Well, they're going to, they're going to, you, you run down that road until you hit the dead end because you're still making sales and it, it allows you to build off of the marketing and you're still working off of the concepts and ideas that the public has about what is good cannabis, what do they expect it to be. And the world of visual cannabis absolutely makes those varieties still unbelievably relevant because they're, they're aspects of, of visual you know, beauty. You can't deny it. And it's we've steered and shaped it. And so the thing is, when when visual and price are your two biggest indicators of a purchase and then in a dispensary, it's going to be potency and price because you really can't see the product. It makes it really difficult to, to get out of those lanes. It's just that what will happen is someone will come up with something new. They'll discover something old. And then you'll see everyone pour into that. And then that plant now becomes the base for hybridization until they reach that pinnacle. 
So we've worked basically a cookie chassis now for of, over a decade because everything that we're talking about is really a, a Girl Scout cookie frame covered with a different paint. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And and even while you were talking about that, it clicked with me that in line with your prior answer as well, you know, the Mac really fit that mold you spoke about where it's like, you know, with the Colombian injecting a little bit of new, but it had the frost, it it had it all. And and to me, I, I actually really enjoy well-grown Mac. I know some people don't, but I guess I'd love to ask you then, you know, given the amount of cultivars you see, what do you think is going to be the front runner for 2024? And, you know, as one of our listeners put it, do you think we're going to be stuck with purple candy gas? I think you're going to be stuck with purple candy gas for a little while because the market's still absorbing it. So if the market was turning its back on it, then you would see people running out of that market and going somewhere else. But because it's still absorbing it, it's still going to sell. And it's hard to tell what's going to be the next hot cut because it it doesn't go the way you think it goes. There's hot cuts that hit the commercial market and there's hot cuts that hit the street. Sometimes they get to touch. You know, like the Mac is the Mac's a good example of a plant, though, that if you look at it, it absolutely changed the game in terms of visual and the new, the numbers were insane but because it was a triploid it didn't produce seeds well almost none and so to me it saved the max life from being this base paint of every single plant around it because people couldn't generate enough seed from it to financially make it worth it so you didn't get the seed yield from the max and so because the triploid potential in it, it actually helped the plant remain as a clone only where to this day, Max still sells as a clone because you, you can't deny that it's stunning and it's raw. I mean, it could use a little flavor. If there was a downfall to the Mac, to me, it's, it's got, it, it could use some more flavor. But in every other aspect, it's, you know, it, it, it pulls it. So things like the Mac, because of the, it, it has a, a genetic anomaly compared to other plants, you know, it's not a diploid, that allowed it to kind of stand alone. But any other plant that comes out that's hot, that, that sells, people see it, it gets promoted by the right person, someone with a big reach can push it out, you're putting it into, into, into the highlight with a lot of, with a lot of attention that moves things more than the quality. So to me, you know, like the people that I see who have the best grass, what I would define as the best grass are the four light tent growers that I meet all over the U S and around the world, really people that are absolutely looking for freak herb that doesn't have commercial constraints. So what you're getting is the best experience total with no, it didn't trim well under a trimmer. It doesn't hold well on a shelf. It doesn't like to be moved through distro because it's fragile. The the trikes are, are they break off too easy, and but it's meant to be consumed as flour. Any of those things that make it problematic, you won't see those plants move into a commercial system. And so going to the regenerative conferences, going to a lot of the events I get to go to, what I get to see is what I think is the highest tier of cannabis I've ever seen across the board is you know, is the production of 2023. But it's in the small operators because they get to go do what they want to do. The stores are limited. So like for big push plant numbers and big push quantities, it better have numbers. It better have color. And candy gas still rules that world. 
what do you think is the solution to the issue? You know, because as you just discussed, you know, a lot of the stuff commercially available, it's not really what we'd consider to be the pinnacle of cannabis. And often you need to experience that ultra high quality to have that light bulb moment and really start to go down the rabbit hole, at least in my opinion. So what what do you think is the future for the, the general consumer? Do you think it'll get to a point where you just can't get this sort of herb you're talking about so fondly that comes from the smaller batch production? They're going to have to get it from the street. The small batch, the true small batch, there's no place for you in the system. I mean, it's so, ex- and even for the bigger operators, and if you're looking at, if you look at any, any country that has operations, it's in chaos. Show me, show me a well-run system anywhere in the world, right? I don't, I'm not looking at any of them. So the issue is that it completely creates a, a ceiling that people can't penetrate to get into that space. And because of it, you lock out diversity and you have to have diversity. You have to have people who are obsessed with a thing so much that they're willing to take a risk with it. And they know enough about what they're doing that they produce the quantity that will sell. So they don't produce they don't put the the plant into the market to produce a million pounds. There's only seven to ten thousand pounds of it produced. That now lets you really focus on the group that has the money and the desire to purchase it. And it allows you now to be able to justify why you're having to charge proportionately more to produce it. Because it, it, it just it, certain places can do certain things. But if it's indoor, you're just going longer times and it's going to really impact your entire crop rotation cycle, the nursery. I mean, the entire chain of events that occur in an operation are dictated by that time. And so when you start to throw in rooms that are running on 110 days versus 65s, it throws the rotation out. So it becomes problematic for anybody that's bigger. But for a small operator, I think as you go forward and you start to see some of the markets like New York, I think is a prime place because you have enough consumers with enough affluence. Um, there'll be the, the ability to sell X amount of pounds of really exquisite flour. Yeah, that's a brilliant answer. And and you got me thinking, you know, we have fans all over the globe who live in these little epicenters of, you know, cannabis growth and development. You know, I know like the UK is a good example. As you said, New York's having its renaissance. I think even in Australia, there's there's a bunch of people who are really doing awesome things. Given your work over the years in the NorCal area, what would be some advice for people living in these areas to help foster a culture where it like, you know, where it helps the scene to develop, you know, how can we help to let the rising tide raise all boats? You know, this is one of the toughest parts about what we do is that cannabis culture is so much an independent one because you have the ability to be autonomous you can, for most, you're able to use your own resources to generate a living. And it allows you to rely on you and allows you to be in control of you. And I think for many people that, you know, it's not that they're devoid of desire to be around others. It's just that being alone, working on a project or working with a person or so isn't a bad thing. That cripples you when you move forward. And it cripples you because what you don't understand is that the companies that you're going to have to face and compete with and deal with, and you will have to compete and deal with them, they're corporations and they're VC driven. And so just like I, I use the same example with the police, right? When you when you run in 
back in the day when you were running hot operations, you had to be smart because when you got grabbed, your life changed 24 hours a day. But the police who grabbed you went home and had dinner and took their kid to play softball. It, they, they go home at night. Uh, the judge goes home at night. The prison guard goes home at night. Everybody goes home at night, but you. And that just means that you have a, a competition that you can't compete with because at the end of the day, they can, they can get rest and you can't. And so what you find is that no matter how clever you might be, to go up against a really funded competitor, which is where you're going to see them come in, they're, it's almost impossible because they have the ability to throw money at a problem. And so what the, the smaller cultivators have to do, and it, which makes it so difficult for them, is they have to first meet. And then they have to be able to say out loud to each other, I'm a grower, which for many coming out of the green closet is a terrifying thing. So it, it that alone is a, is a huge struggle, right? So now you have to get past that barrier. Then you have to get past the barrier of, you know, do you trust anybody that you've just come clean to? Because now all these people know who you really are and what, what, what will that impact? What's the impact to you? So you're, you start to create all these problems just to create unity. And you need to get the unity regardless of the problems, because if you're able to team up as, uh, say we're in a region, say we're, we're just going to use Brisbane. I'm, I'm just going to pull the word out of, a, out, of a, out of a region. We're cultivators in Brisbane. And what we need to be able to do is recognize how many of us are craft cultivators in Brisbane, how many of us have an actual chance to survive based off of what we see currently in Brisbane. And that would mean, do we have enough capital to acquire the licenses? Do we have the real estate? Do we have the means to move the product? Do we have the relationships with the, the, the distribution? Do we have uh, a handle on the genetics? So like there's all these things that have to be developed. And if you can all get together in a region and have that conversation, then you're, it, you're able to start to figure out we're all growers, but you're a, a graphic designer when you're not growing. And I'm an electrician when I'm not growing. And this individual is a business manager when they're not growing. And this other gal is an, in, an incredible product developer when she's not growing. And now what you have is a consortium of talent clustered around the common hub of cultivation of cannabis. And we're just going to say cultivation as the whole industry. When you get everybody in the room together like that, what you have now is, is a brain trust. And if you're able to understand that you have to subjugate your ego to where you're only the smartest in the room in your lane, then what it does is it allows you to be able to team up and actually work against the bigger companies that are coming in because you're able to start to figure out who of you aren't going to make it. Because if once you make that decision you and, and you can make it financially, then you have to say, okay, I can't create a license, but perhaps I could work at a facility. Do I have to not be part of the industry? For people who have the money, have the ability, they say, okay, I can do this. Let us drive forward and get that secured and let the people around us populate the operation. You got to be honest with this shit. And it's hard because each person inherently believes that they're brilliant by virtue of the fact that you're not in the system. You grow an herb. You're having a great life. You're making great money while you're doing it at your house. You're making coin in your fucking pajamas. 
And for most people, that's only for crypto. And so crypto is the modern dope grower. And it's a real problem trying to get people to see past their limitations and understand what they're going to have to do to actually get to the place they want to go. It's, it's brutal. I mean, the, the, the legal industry is a meat grinder. So just because you get a license doesn't mean you're going to succeed. And it, it, there's no, there's nothing in the path that makes you ever feel safe. And, and I'm involved heavily in legal. So it's just one, every time you walk, you feel like you're on crack and ice. Yeah, certainly. And I mean, on the other end of the spectrum of that question, what's your advice for some of the people, say, stateside, who are sort of the more legacy farmer type figures and feel like they're getting pushed out of the market, maybe because they're, you know, not a big brand, something like that? How do you think these sorts of veteran growers are going to be able to stay relevant and stay within the industry, not have to find a new career? It depends on your other skill sets because it, in the end of the day it, you, cannabis might be you know 30% of your total income it was 100% you might have a small farm that you run seasonally you might have an operation that you know you have your son and your daughter working at you you have an ability perhaps to you know utilize your land in some manner but without scale it's very hard because the tax rates are savage in every place we go and so for me, it's, it's this honest, and I've helped a lot of people with this too, because it's emotional and I don't get emotional. It, I, I, I try to save that when it's needed because otherwise it, it just dictates how you see every situation. So I try to look at it robotically as if I w- was not connected to it in any way. And what that does is it lets you have a conversation with somebody and you can honestly ask them, do you want to take all your savings and, and risk developing something that's a risk? Or are you better off keeping your savings and, and finding some new venue, an avenue of employment, but still with your money? Are you, are you really about cultivating anymore? Do you really want the farm? Do you have kids? Do your kids want the farm? And, and those are the questions you have to ask. You know, Do we sell the assets that we've held for time or do we keep them and how do we keep them? Once you get into, for anybody legacy, once you get into legal, you get into a, a sticky trap. It's like the, the traps they put out to catch mice. All it's going to do is touch your finger. And basically it sucks your whole hand into it. And now you, you're trapped. You, you are, it's so complex and in-depth. And it's such a vacuous hole of money. And you really never know how much it's going to cost you when you get into it. There almost is no accurate cost estimates. Each each district you work with, each community has their own little private assault on your wallet. And so it comes down to like, I, is this really where you want to go? And do you see yourself coming out at the end successfully? And you have to define what successful means. For me, like the, the example is, I, I didn't I didn't expect to ever get wealthy from my family farm because I knew that it was only going to be, you know, 18,000 foot of, of canopy. Right. So that's that's a little less than half an acre. That's not a lot of canopy. And I know a lot of canopy in agriculture is 10,000 acres. So when cannabis starts to be you know, produced at a level that's astronomical, 
then how do we compete at 18K? I figured we compete at 18K by having a small enough canopy of something that's exquisite that can actually support the farm itself so the land stays solvent. So for me, a success as the farmer was I have to go do other work to have an existence, but if I can succeed, I get to keep my farm as an asset in my, in my family's life, which is weird. You know I mean? Like you're taking your lucrative weed farm and you're saying, you're probably not going to make any money on it. You're just going to make enough to keep it alive because that's what, that what you love is the land. And for me, I have a love affair with that land. Yeah, certainly. While we're on that topic, I wanted to ask, you know, you're talking about your farm and, and the passion behind it. What genetics have got you excited at the moment? What are you keen to pop yourself? That's a good question. Um, what I've been working on is I've been working on, um, I got I got enthralled with this Lebanese puck frost from crickets and cicada seeds. And so he, he had done a bunch of work with this old skelly hash plant, these old 88 hash plants out of the old Sensi era. And I was alive then growing indoor heavily. And so for me, it's it was like a trip back in time to go back into those musky, funky, skunky type varieties that you just don't really see. And the, the, the Lebanese um, female that he used just really brought some crazy profiles into the flower. And so when I smoked some with them, there was a, there was a flavor in it that just blew my mind and I went digging for it. But it's a. I found it was recessive, and so it was. A, it was a process. I had to go through like a couple hundred plants to mine what I was seeking, which was that profile in the female, and then the male that matched it. And I'm loving it just because it's. It's got a different type of high where the high feels balanced more than a steered high. So, like when you're when you're doing plant development, you're using a COA to drive shit. If you just throw that away and you just drive it off of how you feel from the experience, what you're doing is you're, you're seeking the best experience. There's no constraint from COA. This, it, it doesn't really matter what it's telling me. What, what matters is what I'm feeling. And so what I found was that as I went through those populations, that Lebanese dominant side with a little bit of that puck back tone just gave me this really cool feel. So I felt relaxed and my head was clear and, and the flavor was rich and interesting and cinnamon and rose oil and cedar. And it has zero and it's nothing against gelato or Skittle or cookie or, or haze or OG or cam. It's not against any of them. It doesn't have any of that in it. So it's just a direction that hasn't been explored by many ever because it's from a time past. And for me, it was something I explored heavily and I was able to go back into it and find something that I really liked, which was that Lebanese side. And I've been digging it, man. So I've been doing a ton of work with that. And I would I would love to be able to produce that at the farm as a product because I think it would make an A plus hash. That sounds absolutely incredible and got to give a massive shout out to both Bob and Hannah Bolt making some, some killer genetics. Coincidentally, I'm, I'm fortunate enough, um, he sent me uh, some unreleased seeds, Hash Plant 13 crossed to the Puck Mail that he made. And, nice. um, you know, really lucky to be smoking on a sampler that it's got, the, got the Hash Plant structure, but more of the, the Puck Terps, you know, that steak, leathery sort of vibe. Really, really 
beautiful stuff. Um, I'd love to know, what's your long-term plans with those seeds that you're making? One of our listeners wanted to know, would you ever consider making those available? Because I know that Mr. Bob is a big advocate with people making stuff with the seeds. Oh, totally. Well, the thing with me with like, I do, I work with a lot of companies helping them do breeding, but I'm not a breeder. And the reason why I say that is because I have, I have a, a, I, I produce seed. What I'm really good at is selecting plants. But breeders have a different strategy and an approach. And my mom was a research geneticist. And so I have a pretty clear idea of what that looks like when you're laying out a, a project from that perspective. And so I'm fortunate that I get to work with some brilliant breeders that they help you really understand how to refine your practice. And so what, what I get to do really is I, I get to, for me and my personal stuff, I get to work directions that I dig because I'm not constrained. So I'm not worrying about, does it mechanically trim? Does it have an ability to, to do this? What, I, what I'm focusing on is, does it do what I want it to do as a drug product? And the ability to do that then kind of frees you up to be able to just look through populations and start to put together parental combinations to find out what works. But for me, when I'm working with anybody's work, I've, I've never taken someone's work and used their work to make money off that work quickly. What I do is I take people's work and then I contact you, say, say you made the work. And I'd say, hey, you did a limited release. I did an F2 on it so that I could have a population to hunt through. Would you be cool if I gave out the F2 at conferences so people could get access to your work because you only sold a thousand packs? And there's really desire for 5,000 more. But instead of me knocking off your work as an F2, let me just give them out. And I've done that for years because it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a way that you get really good genes into many people's hands. And so I gave the F2 out all over the globe. So, I mean, I made a shitload. I did an open population F2 out of uh, 56 plants. So 30 females, 26 males. I put them all together at once so I could get a good gene collection. And then I gave those out everywhere. I gave out thousands of those seeds because the quality of that, that hybrid was excellent. And what I wanted to do too was me and Bob are friends. I wanted to bring attention back to him. And even though, you know, he was sold out of that work, it doesn't matter. It gets people to say, Hey, wait a second, you guys are good breeders. And I, I want to mess with your company. So it's just a really good way to do um, marketing and it allows me to, to share things with people that I think are cool. But I want to do the first like release on seed that I'll put onto the market and I'll do that F3 from the, the male and the female that I did that big selection from because I just think they're stellar. And then I'll lay that same male into my LAPK because the LAPK, because that's super rare. And I think that it has some of the, the, the best qualities of, of cannabis that you can ask for, where it has really like no ceiling. And if you smoke it every day, no tolerance. So you get equally as high every day and you get equally as high every time you smoke it after one after another. So it just has these penetrating, resonating impacts. And I just think that that plant with that really sexy coffee, chocolate earth back with that level of potency mixed in with that cedar rose oil cinnamon from the mail that I'm throwing is just going to produce some heat. So I bet by, let's see, we're, we're, we're into the veg right now. 
So springtime, springtime, I'll be throwing some seed out to the public from that work because I just think that that's, it, it got me excited because I just got bored. I've been playing with so many things for so long that I got bored. It's nothing against any of the breeders or any of the plants. I think they're all epic in their own way. But the problem is you start smoking the same hybrids for so long, they all feel the same. The high is the same. There's very little difference in how it impacts me. And you become kind of bored. It it's It just loses its luster. Yeah, certainly. I think we can all relate to, you know, something that initially was really interesting quickly becomes quite bland, especially if you overindulge. But that's really exciting to hear that, you know, there's some genetics in the woodworks and everyone needs to keep their eyes and ears out. I was, uh, you know, trawling through your Instagram and I, I knew I had to ask you about, You've. it sounds like, you know, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily a sister line, but, you know, there's there's another sort of line in that realm that caught my eye from you, which was the, the Sensi Star lemon tree mix with the same genetics. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, totally. I got, I went into the Sensi Star work that he did too, because I, I still like Sensi Star a lot way back in the day. And I ran it outside first. And it was funny because it took me right back to the 90s because everything we ran in the 90s was indoor built. So when you took it outdoor, it rotted. And it just didn't have the, the resistance, right? But I found one of them, number 18, that resisted really well and was just a stellar plant. So then I took it indoor and I had my partner run it in a steered system so I could see what it looked like in um, crop steered rock wool under leads. And it was gorgeous. But it didn't have that metallic, lemony, bitey flavor that I wanted from the Sensi Star. It was more puck dominant. And I didn't really find any that had that, what I, what, though I was seeking. But it was gorgeous. It, it, the smoke was good. The high was good. Like every single thing about it was, a, was an A. But it, it lacked a little flavor. So what I did is I took a, a red lead puck male. Because I didn't, I, I just wanted to bring some of the red lead puck profile in, but I took a red lead puck male into a lemon tree. And then I did a, a hunt through that for a male that would give me a combination of traits where it wasn't all lemon and it wasn't all puck. And it, it had enough of the red lead to add some nuance to the lemon tree. And so I took that male and then went into that Sensi 18. And then from there, I was able to uh, give what I would say like a, an improved flavor profile. So I just have to go through a little more of the population. I think the 18 was visually a little better than the one that I was playing with. But I just have to go open up the population to 100. And that'll let me see something that had what I wanted from the 18 mother, but with the, the traits of that lemon tree, red lead pop put on it, but woven together nicely. I don't, you know, that's the problem. When you play with lemon, lemon can dominate and it just becomes too much of it. And the thing is, when it comes to like consumer preference, human preference, we, we like things that we like, but we like some complexity. So we feel interested when we play with it. You never fully understand it. You're always like, ooh, ooh, there it is. Like, ooh. But when it's just lemon or just grape or just orange or just lime or just apple or just peach or just pear or just watermelon, you get bored quick. And so when you lay some of these profiles together, if you look at enough populations, you just realize that it, it comes down to numbers where you're hunting through populations to find the ones that have the traits you want with those flavors that mesh. And it's, it's solid. I got some in the other room. I grew a bush of it outdoor and it, it's killer. 
That's awesome. Is that one maybe going to be offered as well, or is that more a personal project? No, that was more personal project. I was just sometimes, you know, you just chase things because you want to explore. And if you if you get to work with a line, like say we're using puck as the back, right? So puck is the base for all these things. And so like I got to look at some of the Naples into the puck too. And the Naples I knew well because I provided it to Bob. So the Naples was a cut I got out of Grass Valley, and it was just this incredible hash plant, gorgeous. And I gave it to him to use in the project. And then I, so I knew what that plant looked like. So when I got to see what his puck male did against it, it let me kind of better understand what the male's impact was on anything else I'm using. So I see the impact of the the puck on the Nepalese. I see the impact of the male on the Sensi Star. I see the impact on the male on the Red Leb. And it just helps me kind of understand better how deep am I going to have to go to find what I'm seeking? Because the, the sometimes it's just, you're just hunting. But with the Red Lab, the problem was I had smoked some with Bob and the sample that he had brought had that flavor. And he cursed me because once he, once he exposed me to that shit, I was on a tirade, man. I was going for that flavor. And it took me a minute to find it because it was really a recessive trait. So, you know, one out of a hundred frequency. And so if, you know, you're not going through a hundred plants, you're not going to find it. You might find five in a single pack, but like we're talking, I had to go through a hundred of the F2. I didn't find it in the F1 at all, not to the same degree I wanted. So what I did is that when I went into that F2 work, I took the nine females that had the most close to what I wanted traits and I used that nine female pollination from the from the 26 males into that. So at least it started bringing down my selection traits from the female side. And then from there, I was able to go, okay, now what do we have and what's going to come from it? And then as I started to open up the populations, I could find the males that took the traits that I was seeking. And you start to, if you're not using lab analysis, you're having to go through your your intuition you're having to take a look at what are the traits of that the plants are displaying and then you got to lay it into them and figure out what's coming out but you got to kind of steer first to at least neck it out and then you have to take the, the the plants you're working with to full fruition to make sure there's no intersects because a lot of the plants from the past had intersects so that you see it pop up male and female so you, you know you you have this beautiful female and you're at the end of the cycle, it starts to, it starts to come apart. I don't want that propensity for intersex in it at all. I don't want the male to, to suddenly reverse at the end of its life cycle. I don't want the female to display anything. What I want is as much sexual stability as possible. And then from here now, we're able to create some stable work. When you're working with companies, like if I get brought into a scientific company, it's different because I'm helping them understand the traits of desire. I'm helping them understand that this smell right here smells like shit. And nobody would buy it, right? So the person that's saying they like it, they're not the person to say that. They're, they're somebody who's an anomaly and they shouldn't choose things for the public. It, it just kind of helps companies fine tune the work. But with scientific companies, meaning that they have the ability to utilize scientific resources, their toolbox is massive. So they're able to do this all through analysis, but for me and, and for people who do, you know, breeding at home in their own world, 
you have to be able to utilize conventional breeding methodology and just be kind of really diligent about what it is you're trying to get and make sure that the work you're doing is the direction you want. Yeah, incredible answer. Definitely can appreciate the sentiment of, as you said, that distinction between like doing stuff at home versus, say, working with a big company. Definitely two different approaches there. Radically different. On that line of thinking, just for our listeners at home who, for the most part, are not working with companies, what sort of traits do you look for in males? Do you have any tips for our listeners? And as a follow-up, do you think it's an art or more of a science or a mixture of both? It's crazy. It's a roll of the dice. It's, it's about population numbers. And at the end of the day, the males that you choose sometimes really weren't the ones that pushed the traits that you desired forward. So if you like, I always use myself as an example where the children that I have take far after their mother's side than me, which is a good thing. And it just means that I'm a male that lets the female traits pass through. So I would be a good breeder male if you were trying to allow the female to come forward. But when I look at populations, if I can go play with it for a while, it's the play with it for a while part that matters. It's to figure out what are you seeing coming out? And when you put together the plants, what seems to come out in traits in clusters? What's the most number of traits you see consistently and which males are producing that many of them at one time so that you know that you're able to start steering and necking a population down outliers are tough you don't really know how many you're going to have to go through to find but what i what i want is i want males that i would say are, are you know not the first flowering necessarily or the last flowering but in in the in the medium medium cycle plant so I'm not looking for the outliers on flowering time. I'm looking for normal mid-range flowering time. What I'm seeking is, and it's rare, and I only I only play with a couple males ever because of it. Like, like I'll do open pop work to get populations. But once I go and dig for a male, it's a dig. Because what I want is I want some really freaky resin development. I want to see a male that's absolutely covered in trikes. And I want to see it with a, a very powerful pungent odor. I want to be able to feel uh, natural essential oil production on it. I want to be as impressed by the male in its traits more than its structure than the female. The female is, we can see what we have because we can consume it, but the male doesn't always tell us this. We have to run it. But if I can get the profile in the male, which is rare, if I can get the resin content in the mail, which is rare, if I can get the oil production in the mail, which is rare, and I get it in a good frame that I like in a medium finish, I have a mail that I can play with. And then when I run it, it lets me see what comes out of the progeny. And if I know it's good, then what I can do now is I can take a collection of plants and run it into it and and preserve them in that manner so like what's a good example i went maybe 10 11 years ago we were at the what i would call like the peak of the medical world in, in cannabis in california the zenith of the industry right and it fuel was taking over everything fuel was just wreaking havoc and another couple of years we were going to go into candy gas and i just I, and i've been doing this for so long you see the traits so what i did is i took everything that we would consider 
more uplifting, like so stuff like you know green cracks and um, different haze cuts, um, blue dream, uh, all these other plants of that era that fit into that narrow leaf uh, ethereal type high. I knew that I was going to have to sit on them for a decade because it was going to be no market for them. So what I did is I took all of those plants that had those characteristics that were so valuable in the market. And remember, this is before tissue culture, right? So you're not banking shit. You're having to hold a living plant, which is difficult. So what I did is I, I went through a population I'd worked on that I got from Bodhi, which was uh, a Sensi Star Malawi. And I took that and went into it another generation or two hunting for a male that I could use that gave me that, that ethereal Malawi edge, that nasty, sharp, ripping high, that loud, super loud, sharp odor, but brought down a little bit in stature. So it was more workable because where I live in Humboldt County, it has to be some reasonable time. You know, Halloween is pretty much the limit of what I want to play with out here. Really. If, if it's, if it's a, a traditional Humboldt wet, winter by the time you get into early november it's wet so i wanted to be able to finish so i need to bring the african down a little bit his sensi star was choice and so i selected a male from that and then i used it against all those plants and then banked the seed and i just broke them out like six months ago and pulled out a blue dream malawi sensi star so that i can use as something that fits the need of today which is something ethereal something clear-headed, but sharpened up from Blue Dream. So the high is similar, but the the odor profile is a little edgier, not as soft, and the resin content's increased. So like once you know you have a male that you can use, what people do is they bang it into everything they can touch. But really what you want to do is put it into plants that you think will combine ideally, and it lets you at least know that you know the mother plant well, the father you've selected and developed and it allow you now to be able to go through the population and you're, you're able to say, look, I can't hold it in pure form unless I self it. But if I go this route, what it'll do is it allow me to start combining the, the, the effects of both. So I had to, I used to do few males for people. I would build few males that when you put it on a plant, it would increase the gas and increase the numbers. And then I would give that male to people I knew that were breeders that wanted to do their own breeding and say, look, this is a male that when we put it on other plants, these are the results from the lab. And this is what it's given us. It's given us good resistance. It's given us a good, a good finish. The meaning the flower is pretty. So when you, when you go and put the work in a male is priceless. That's why everybody selfs because it, it allows you to lock the genes into an internal pool. But to me, man, a, a good breeder male is priceless. Yeah, hugely, hugely. There's a there's a lot of great knowledge there. We'll all have to listen to that little bit again and, and extract some ideas out of it. I, I wanted to ask you, you know, while we're sort of on this topic, what would your advice be for someone who is maybe, say, an aspiring breeder and they feel like, you know, the market's saturated, you know, they probably, I guess the sentiment I sort of put forward is there's no point doing, you know, gastro pop cross Cushmints, you know, someone else has probably already done it. What advice would you give to someone about how they could try to, you know, carve their own path out without further going down the genetic dead end we've discussed? Sure. If, if you want to, you know, do it easily and 
you have a lot of nice plants to work with today that provide like your base chassis. So let's say Oreos. So Oreos is a plant that is an A plus in every category, except um, the, I would say the flavor smells a little off, but like in terms of resistance and I mean, it's bulletproof, gorgeous, gorgeous plant. If we could take that as the chassis and then put a better paint job on it and, and throw some flavor in it, then what you have now is, is something that's pretty, pretty workable. And so I think that the advice for anybody that wants to do something is first do it because you like it, do it, do it because you're into it. Don't worry about it. And if you like gastro pop, uh, you know, uh, Z crosses, then that's what you like. It's okay. It, it doesn't matter where you begin. What matters is you begin. It's just that when you go to work with lines that are extremely clustered where you have many poly hybrids that got put together to create the hybrid what you have is this wicked population that pops out and it makes it very unpredictable and so i think that if you're trying to really understand you know better breeding you work with things that are a little more necked up so like that's why you got to see so much skunk one and, and northern lights type work because they were pretty consistent in what came out from seed form so it allows you to play around and say okay what happens when i do this and it lets you find subtleties. But if you're taking a polyhybrid and you're hitting with another polyhybrid, you might have to open up the population to a couple hundred to really find the one you were hoping to get because there's so many genetic combinations possible due to the incredible uh, heterozygosity of the gene pool present. There's just so much shit going on. So I think for anybody that was starting, just make it easy on yourself and just do it because you like it, you know, chase the flavor profile or chase. It could be resistance for some people. It's finishing time. You need something to finish in your environment. For some people, they need it very short because they have uh, low ceilings in their grow. I mean, it doesn't have to be profound why you're choosing and working with something. Just let that be the constraint so that you learn how to breed towards a constraint. I call it like intentional breeding. You're, you're conscious of what you're trying to do. Otherwise, I use use the same analogy. It, you and I both have dogs and we're neighbors. Your dog jumps the fence and screws my dog. That doesn't make me a dog breeder, right? I'm not a dog breeder. Two dogs had sex. It, it's, there's no intention to that. Yes, my, my female is going to produce puppies now. But does that mean that I had any idea of this? Or, and do I have any idea of the outcome? So I think for, for people who are getting into breeding, you can play with anything and open it up because it's always good to see diverse gene pool because it lets you understand the issue in cannabis today and then work with things that you know have been worked repetitively enough to where if you use it, you can expect some form of consistent result. And there's a ton of it. There's no shortage of it online. You, you just have to go to craft breeders and, and look for the words F4, F5, F6 like coffee from Kaya, right? Everybody uses coffee and well, not everybody, but it's pretty popular as a base because Kaya did a really good job stabilizing that work initially. And then all the people who got it from them, they, in, they took it their own route individually. So you got some of this stuff I'm looking at like, you know, F9, F10. So you're in your 10th generation of refinement breeding. That plant should give you some stability in the outcome. Predictability is the word, really. 
And that's something that the, the small breeder needs to see too. So you work with something that's extremely predictable and then you work with some shit that's out of control. So you get to experience the two realms and you'll find who you are because for some people experiencing the unpredictable is really what they need. That's, that's their adventure. That's their hunt, you know? What a brilliant and practical answer. You know, I like that example you gave about the chassis and uh, making it your own from there. I, I really do love that. And you spoke about, you know, maybe flavors your thing, chase that. Well, I'm going to I'm gonna chase that up because I know that you probably know the backstory and the history on a lot of strains from Grass maybe. Valley. <laughs> I, used to, I, used to, I used to think I did. But at the end of the day, what I know is like what I touched. And sometimes we can, there's many of us that can agree, okay, this seems to be the most possible story, but you know, with cannabis, because of the nature of it illicitly, there was always secret. And then once you get into the game of whatever's hot, it becomes that. So DNA analysis lets us really take a look at this picture a lot differently. And you start to realize like, wow, um, do we really know what we have at all? So that's why, like, when you keep a clone or you keep something that really resonates with you, it's best to keep it. If at all possible, keep the plant that resonated with you because you do not know if you can actually get back there because someone told you it was Granddaddy Perp and really it was a Nepalese Kush. And when you go buy Granddaddy Perp seeds to go find that plant that you love so much, you'll never find it because you don't really understand it's not that family at all. Certainly, that's, that's a valid point, and I feel like you're reading my mind because you know exactly where I'm going to take this conversation. But the first thing I wanted to ask you is, do you know or do you have any idea on the backstory of Skittles? Because I feel like for a strain that's made such an impact in the community, the, the backstory is still relatively unknown. I'm, I'm wondering, do you know anything about the infamous gas station Bob? I do, I do. And that God, this is a, a controversial topic. Holy shit. Um so I get, I get exposed to Skittles from fields at the Emerald Cup. And it wasn't Skittles. They wanted to call it Sherbert. And it was incredible. I was like, holy shit, this shit's phenomenal. And he's like, yeah, me and the boys, you know, uh, we got this plant. And so I didn't get a story from him. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew that it was, it was cracking. And this was, I mean, this was the moment it came out. It wasn't called Skittle yet. That name appeared, then they created it. They did an incredible job marketing and branding it. But, um, one day I'm at my shop and uh, this dude comes in to buy some clones and we're talking and he's like, you want to smoke a joint? I got some Skittle. And I said, yeah. I said, I'll burn one with you. I said, you get that from Fieldsy. And he was like, no. He goes, fuck him. I'm his father-in-law. I provided the cut to him. That's Bob. And so his story was that he went down to Visalia to get a tray of clones and that clone was a mistake in the tray. And so when, when, so that, and, and so I had, and I got, so I ended up grabbing the cut. I didn't get the cut from fields. I grab a copy of the Skittle. So I had it the whole time too fr from them. But what, what, what I got was I got to hang out with Jigga and we were talking about, he said, hey, I got a question. He said, I saw that you DNA'd your green sherbet and the Skittle and they're connected. And I said, they are. I said, I had the green sherbet before the Skittle or around that time. And when I got a hold of it, I said, these things have to be related. This flavor is too unique. So I DNA'd them 
and they were related. And that that relationship was just was posted. And so when when Jigga and I hook up, he has the same plants DNA. And, and so he's talking to me and, I, and he's like, what's the story? And I said, look, I said, I got it from a guy that got it from someone down in Southern California. And he was like, that's what we figured. He had an employee that worked for him that he believed stole plants and went down to his mom's spot, which was in Visalia. So does that mean all these stories are real? No, I mean, Bob could be telling me a bullshit story. And so too could you. It's just that what I know is I'm acquiring plants from groups that are related. So when I'm getting the green sherbet out of the, out of the Bay area sherbet crew, that's in that cluster, right? How would that plant from them have Skittles in it? Cause the DNA doesn't lie that they're connected. Does that mean we know how it happened? No, but what we know is that there's genes and, and that, that green sherbet that I kicked out is still doing really well in the, in the extraction circuit. People still killing it with that plant. But at the end of the day, that's why I'm saying, do you ever really know the real story? And so what I know is that the Skittle and that green sherbet are most definitely related. What I know is that um, it's not what the lineage says it is. There's no, it's not a grapefruit or whatever the fuck it is that's listed on there. But the problem is it's almost like we're going to get into cookie, right? So years before Cookie gets released, right, like before the public gets to touch it, Alan Atkinson out of Mendo says to me, a cherry pie pollinated a Pakistani citral kush. The herb goes down to the Bay Area and Jigga gets that weed and gets a seed out of it and grows it. And that's the cookie. And he goes, and when the day DNA comes out, it'll it'll back that up. and. I laughed and said, okay. And years later, when we got a DNA, we're like, whoa, it's cherry pie. So you kind of go, wait a second. Um, these accidental pollinations that occur and then someone's fortuitous enough to recognize what they have. Right? So the 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 it isn't that you the problem is people claim to breed it, which then fucks them because they can't go back on that. They can't say, I didn't create this. Because they have to say, I created it because it allows there to be exclusiveness, which lets the public believe they're the only ones that are going to get it from that source. But down the road, when the truth comes out, you can't back up from it because you've already said out loud 10,000 times, I made it. And to me, it would be better if you just said, I found it and my skill was in recognizing its value. So I think that when you really go through and start to look at a lot of the, the foundation work that people have done, a lot of the stories that go along, when I get into the world of Hayes and you're talking to Neville's crew or you're talking to Sam's crew, you, like each crew has their own unique story on that. And they don't jive at all. I'm talking fucking not at all. So who do you believe? Really? You know what I mean? You have to kind of choose who you believe. And it's like, no, no, he's right. They're all right in their own regard, but the problem is they're all they're all legendary figures. And at the end of the day, I've talked to all of them and no story ever really balances itself evenly throughout. So what I just know is that it's incredible herb and we have a great story behind it. And that way what it does, it lets you it lets you get away from 
where it came from because at the end of the day, it's opinion. Unless you bred that shit yourself. If you fucking went to Colombia and returned with those seeds in your pocket, you can tell me that that shit's Colombian. That from this region and it did this. But otherwise... It could, it could, you could have bought those seeds off of any land race group and sold and sold them to me. So I collected these myself. You know, you got them in a mixed pack from somebody. You don't know. Some really interesting talking points you touched on there. And as you said, sometimes you just got to take all the stories and just take them all on board instead of committing hard to one or the other. And, you know, what a great answer about the Skittles, you know, so much info there. I guess I'd love to ask two quick follow-ups. The first one is, do you think that the green sherb and the Skittles are like maybe sisters from the same seed stock or more likely to be like one's an S, one of the other? And as a quick follow-up to that, does this not speak huge volumes about like the monolith that is cookies in the sense of what they've been able to bring to the industry, both cookies and possibly Skittles? Oh yeah, they're they're definitely related, and we can't you can't tell if it's um, parent or child. You just you just know that they're they're definitely linked. Um, no cookies. What cookies was able to do was cookies cookies was able to take the cannabis lifestyle of the future. They recognized the people in the Bay Area wanted their own vibe. They they build this machine of culture that and it's funny because people from the past in cannabis culture you know they don't like the culture but it's not their culture it's a culture for people that are 22 years old which just like us at one point in time that was our culture we were 22 and what they were able to do was capture that lifestyle imagery and then you got some crazy circumstances you know you got you got you got jigger who digs up the cookie cut approaches burner who's a musician who moves packs that they're able to create this pipeline of this really beautiful plant that is absolutely polar to OG. So OG had owned it, but the Bay is a purple region, right? So the Bay Area has always been really perp dominant and perp more than a color is a flavor too. It's a, it's, it's a feel. It's, it's, it's more complicated than what people give it. It's not just anthocyanin. It's a, it's a mental connection to a thing. Purple is the color of royalty. There's all these little things that just people go for it. And he was able to take this radically different thing than OG and highlight it and pushed it. The internet takes it. The internet's blown up at this time. And so now you're like, you've had, you had forums before, but the marketing on the internet for cookies was supernatural. That stuff was flying. And lo and behold, who is Burner's next door neighbor? Sherbinsky. So Sherbinsky lives next door to him. So Sherbinsky's like, hey, I got this mail I want to use. Let me use your cut. And the next thing you know, you got you got Sherbert coming out. Then they go back into it. And then you got you got gelato coming out. And so they're just swirling some plants around. But what they're doing is they're putting together some really incredible work because you can't deny the fact that billions and billions and billions of dollars of that flower sold and still sell, which means people must have liked it. They must have liked the appearance and they must have liked the, the flavor and the effect. So Sherb hits, you know, he hits a ball clear out of the planet with his first work. And it's just this coincidence of you're in the Bay Area at the right time with the right guy. And Sherb's a smart dude. They knew how to brand and push. They were able to do the hype. Same thing with the Skittles. If you look at Skittles, I think taste the strain, bro is about as funny as it gets. Like their whole, 
the whole Z thing. And the, I mean, they just basically stole the whole brand from, from, uh, was it Wrigley? But they did such a good job. It was just so funny, just excellent imagery. And if you look at Skittle, you know, anything that, that's, that has Skittle in it is worth 18% more in the market. And that was data that the company that sued him dug up. I read the whole lawsuit because I was just so fascinated with it. And the claims on financial damage were there because they said, hey, if Skittles and weed, it sells for an average of 18% more than herb that doesn't have Skittles. So Skittles has a flavor that's absolutely hyper addictive to people. Show me something right now that's not that's hot that doesn't have it in it. Holy shit! It, it's it's it, it's got to be fifty percent of the market. And and if you add gelato, now you're up to eighty percent of the market. And then you add triangle cushion, you finish the fucking job. <laughs> you're basically covering the fucking whole thing, right? So it's just some brilliant marketing, but you can't deny that people must have loved it, or they wouldn't buy it and use it. And so you know, cookies. Cookies brilliance was that they just I look at I look at cookies like I look at like DC shoes, like I look at other like skate brands, lifestyle brands. I look at them like Red Bull, where Red Bull is there. Yeah, they're an energy drink, but really they're a media company that what they market is adrenaline. And what what cookies markets is, is this, you know, urban lifestyle where you're wearing flashy shit. And you got cool, trendy clothes. Every store has it. Like, shit, I have a cookie store, right? So every every store has its own clothing line. So if you want to get something from the one log, you got to buy it from us. So it's some really brilliant shit when it comes down to addressing how people behave in the in the current world. And I think that the issue so many have is it's so contrary to the way we behaved prior because we weren't flashy. We were far more subdued. We lived in much more uh, obscurity. We were trying not to be seen. We were trying not to yell loud. We were, we were moving our herb because the market had not enough herb. So it was sucking out of your hands. And what he did was created a marketing machine that's absolutely unparalleled in cannabis today. I don't see anybody in any country that's really doing what he's doing in promoting the product. There's bigger brands, but I don't think anybody is, is, is he's done a better job. There's no celebrity brands that work that don't connect to him. Mm. Yeah. Hugely. He's, he's definitely paved the way for a lot of people, a lot of jobs, um, put food on the table for a lot of people. That's something that I always think about whenever I read criticisms of burner it's um it's kind of undeniable the uh the success and the uh the influence he's had on the industry um to to quickly loop back though to the the skittles we were talking about mm-hmm. it was it was the phylos testing which revealed that link initially between the green sherb and the skittles mm-hmm. and obviously a few years ago the whole catastrophic burn down of phylos was was quite a sort of prominent discussion point when some of their future plans came to light and some of the issues around the storage and selling of data i'd love to ask how do you feel about it all now that the dust has settled? And, you know, how, how do you feel in the context of how the story all unfolded? Well, fuck, I feel, I, I, I feel the same now as I did then. The, the, the truth of it is, is when I, I'm, I, I'm, 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 I'm the working with Philos for a decade, right? I met him when they were in a laboratory in the basement of an, a university in Oregon. 
and they asked me to come in to speak to them about um, the world of, of cannabis genetics. And I asked them, what do you guys do? And they said, what we want to do is we want to be able to do the research for breeders. So I said, you don't, you don't want to get involved in breeding yourself? They said, no. What we want is we want the ability to just do the research because then we don't have to go raise the money for infrastructure, for cultivation and all the other associated pieces. We're all um, PhD level geneticists. What we want to be able to do is take the information from the farmers, go through it, and then go to their farms and help them do the actual project. But we're from the, the, the science end of it. They're the cultivation end of it. And I said, hey, I said, I like that. Because what I was trying to do at the same time was when we did it, we were able to put the Appalachians into Humboldt County. And so even though they're not technically true Appalachians because cannabis isn't indigenous to Humboldt County, we were able to take the ideas of Appalachians and then how they modified them for American grape as amended viticultural agreements. And at the end of the day, what the point of it is, is that I wanted to be able to start having a relationship with a genetic company that would allow us to start developing and building things that fit our farms optimally, that we would then be able to license or, or protect and have the ability to operate in, in a scarce model so that the small farms that were getting the Appalachian, that's a distinction. If the Appalachian is, is, is really in effect, it means that the genes and the place merge and create a very unique impact. The ability to have a gene company and to develop these plants that you own. So now the only person that has this product is your farm. To me, allows small operators to be able to fight in the future because it, it it's, it's the only way you can. You have to have better plants and you have to have unique plants. So we get together and work. And this shit started going south for them. And it... it it's funny because like, I don't talk about it too much, but what took place was the industry wasn't at the level it needed to be to work with scientists. And so what happened was they made an assumption, which was wrong, that cannabis farmers were going to be able to operate on a very consistent level that a scientific project requires. And science requires a lot more than you think it does. Like we're talking multi-year projects, right? So like, I'm not a scientist, so I don't pretend to be one either. I just work with shitloads of them for decades. And what I know is that it's attention to fucking detail that really separates good science where you are absolutely myopic on the fucking data. And there can be no deviation or there's chance that it won't work. And so I was putting them in contact with farms, large farms, large operations to do the work. And it was failing because the growers didn't want to show up. They didn't need to show up. Everybody was still making money. You're, you're not making the 4,000 a pound you made, but you're making 2,000 a pound. You didn't really realize you're about to make 300 a pound, but in your mind, you're still balling out of control. So you're showing up when you should want to show up and you're, you're not really having any, any kind of inspections from the state. So you're still using all kinds of crazy shit secretly in your facilities. You're not following protocol in any way, shape, or form because you didn't need to because Herb had always been like that. Herb wasn't a well-oiled machine. It was a bunch of clanky fucking gears that worked because there was a market that wanted so much Herb, you couldn't possibly fill it. It was a shortage of product 
that made all of us feel like we were smart. Well, once the fucking product filled in, does everybody feel so smart now? Are you like, you know, like you can, you can be smarmy about it. Like, you know, I'm, my, my pot's better than the big person, but you're having to work at, at the, at the fucking coffee shop just to pay your rent because you're getting the shit kicked out of you in your weed game. None of us knew this. And I had a feeling I did. I had a premonition that this shit was going to occur. And I was trying to develop all my relationships so that when the dust settled, we would still be able to function in Humboldt County. We would still be able to have an ability to create a value. And, and a lot of it was land preservation. I knew we were going to get butchered, but I didn't want to have to sell my property. It was something I wanted to give to my kids. So I got this like this. That, that's an emotional piece of me, but I'm hanging on to this land. I get involved with them to develop. I tie them into all these people. And I'm not going to name who they work with, but Jesus Christ, these are people that are fucking big today and absolutely dropped the ball. And they said, hey, this isn't working. We're going to have to go raise money because we can't. And they already raised money to, st to get to that point. They already had to buy all the sequencers. They had to go buy all the tools. They had to hire the scientists. So they got this entire fucking company they're building. With, with expectation of payment of that money, somebody fucking loaned them the cash and now they can't pay it back because they can't actually do the job that they set out to do because the people they were working with weren't ready. So it isn't the cannabis people are too stupid. It's just they weren't ready for the realization that they were going to have to get the fuck up in the morning early and be there on time in a facility that's clean and normal because that's not what the norm was. Right. It like, I mean, I've been to a million, I've been to a million, but I've been to as many grows as anybody I know. I've seen grows all over the place. They look radically different now than they did in the past. The cleanliness, the, just the, just the overall, like the improvement of cultivation practices is improved tremendously. So they have to go raise the money. Right. And so I always say the same thing. I'm like, they send the CEO out there to go raise the loop. He goes to a conference, somebody films it. And they say, oh, look at this fucking guy. He's saying we have all the data, which doesn't do shit. You can have all the data you wanted. But until you go run it through a fucking sequencer for 10 years, there's there's very little value. But for people who are investment, it's sexy. And then he says, you know, cannabis people can't breed. And in terms of like scientific breeding, they can't because they don't have the tools. They're not corn breeders. And so they took it personal and I would too, because, you know, the words coming out of his mouth are bad, but you got to remember the guy was pitching for money. And I always use the same analogy. You went out on a date and somebody filmed you talking to this girl that you're trying to hang out with. And they filmed all your words and no one knew, but, but the fucking cameraman that you were speaking. And so therefore your honest shit was coming out your mouth. How fucking well do you paint yourself when you're trying to pitch for a date? When you're pitching for an investor, that shit's even worse. You are trying to make it look like you are just absolutely are the greatest, surest bet in human history because you're asking them to give us money to stay alive. And so my and it's funny, I never really hung out with Mowgli much. Mowgli was the CEO. My connections were the COO and one of the founders. So Ralph and Nishan were the guys I had dealt with and all their scientists. And I knew Mowgli, but we really never spent much time together. And he was always hella nice. And he was definitely a brilliant dude. I mean, in, in terms of like intellectual capacity for being a breeder, I mean, holy shit, he was absolutely razor sharp. But Mowgli made the mistake of insulting an industry 
that was on their hands and knees getting the shit kicked out of them by the money already. And they were just getting shelled. And so what they said was, the only thing we have is our genetics and that we know this plant better than these people. And when he says, hey, I already have your data and I don't need you, everyone felt invalidated. And so because I, and it's funny because I get jammed into it too because I had the largest data collection on the on the, the galaxy. But what I was doing, and that was through the Future Cannabis, uh, uh, what was that called at the time? Not Future Cannabis Project, but it was with Rob Clark and a bunch of them. They came to me and said, hey, there's a group that's putting genetics into a system. If you put your genes in, it'll open source it in a sense that nobody can claim it as theirs because you've stated that it's been in prior use. So what I did is I took the entire collection I had amassed and I put it into public domain so that anybody that I'd ever sold a clone to that was making money with it would be able to make money forever using it because nobody owned it but them or me or anybody. It had no ownership because I'm the one that put it on the galaxy and I'm not claiming it. And so the, the funny thing is, is I start getting hit by people screaming at me about how I um, fucked them on the data and the genetics. And I'm laughing and I'm like, I'm the one that gave you the plant. They didn't steal your genes. You're saying that the SFV cut that, that's on the galaxy that they have the data from and that's stamped is somehow directly fucking you and you're mad at me because I'm part of it, but I'm the one that gave you the plant. So it's not your plant really. It's just you don't have an ability to own it either. So I took my whole collection and opened it up to the public. In a way, and this was like from Rob. And so then Rob and them have fallen out with Mowgli. And I don't even know the story on that shit. I don't even care. I just know that when you put plants that are sequenced into the open air, it means that there's a prior knowledge that plant existed, which means that for the rest of my career, I can grow OG Kush and never have to listen to one fucking person tell me I can't or anyone else. So I knew what I was trying to do. Because those are the plants that, and, and it was it was the idea that these plants are the ones that I had used to build my world, that we had collected and, and held and stored and moved and bred and created. And to me, this, this population of plants was our lifeline that we had all worked years, people I had received them from, some of them people were dead. So you're like, I'm somebody who's been holding plants in quantity for decades, constantly moving plants millions of fucking plants through my hands for years to me what i wanted was that base population to be everybody's and then from this point forward you would go and develop your own work and license it because that's the only way you're going to compete as a small operator you cannot run the same plant that a big brand has it's insane because they're going to kick your ass in price they're going to drop the price seven bucks and you're done you're not, not going to buy your better weed they're going to buy $7 cheaper weed. And when people argue with me, I laugh. I'm like, and you own a store and have a cash register. Trust me on this one. Drop the price seven bucks and watch that shit walk out the door like it's got three legs. So this whole thing was this war over what took place. And the idea that Phylos had a gene gun that they could use to shoot the DNA code from the sample that was sent and recreate new material. And I'm like, so let me get this straight. Somebody's got a fucking gene gun that they can recreate shit from the past and they're using it to create your fucking plant. Of all the things in the world that I could restore, <laughs> I, I need your weed cut. 
This shit got nuts. And it got so out of control because it became this witch hunt. And anybody who had ever worked with the company had to basically tell them to fuck off so that they didn't get attacked. But as soon as they did, the public had crucified them anyways. And so I'm, I'm involved in this shit and I'm watching it go down and I'm like, what a fucking debacle. And the company hits me up and says, hey, you're getting hammered on this shit, man. People are like losing their mind over this because you're not you're not saying that we lied to you. And like, I'm saying, no, you didn't lie to me. You weren't. I know you're not trying to steal anyone's shit. I understand what you're trying to do. And I know how it panned out. But what you're saying to me is that if I need to throw you under the bus, you're okay with that to save my neck. And they're like, yeah, we would rather you say that like we lied to you and screwed you because we feel bad that you're getting so attacked in the public. And I said, listen, I said, anytime anybody says that they'll take the beating for you, that's who I stick with. Because the public, who the fuck is the public? Like, honestly, like, where is this? What is this thing? Is it a fucking entity that floats around in the room? It varies day to day, minute by minute. And what I know is I'm not an internet entity. I'm on the net a lot because I spend time doing stuff like this, but my whole world was built off of work. And so I'm just like, fuck you. If you know me, you know me. And if you don't like me, you don't like me. But over the years, it's been pretty stable and solid. And I'm just going to stick with the group that knows me. And if the internet world decides that they just can't deal with me, then so be it. I go into purgatory on in the web, but I'm not going to dump you as a, as a, as a friend, because you're telling me, Hey, you can make, you can make it look like we screwed you. So at the end of the day, it all dies down. And what they end up doing is they end up spending, you know, the next six, seven years developing incredible CBD lines and then all these seed lines. And they went into the almost 20% THCV gene. So now you're seeing a 20% THCV release from them. So all the stuff that they wanted to do, which was create seed lines, do plant development, all of that had to happen in a way they never intended it to happen, which really cost them a lot of money they had to raise and get dilution because at the end of the day, what they wanted to do was just be data scientists and play with your toys. And so it's a good lesson because at the end of the day, a team of brilliant people that could gather money still went down the wrong road because of the assumption that the people they were going to work with would be able to play at that level currently. And so now you're seeing this shit everywhere. There's, there's, there's no shortage of DNA people. There's no shortage of this. And everybody's screaming and yelling about it. But they were the first. And when you filmed that raise and you get them on tape saying, cannabis people don't know how to breed and we have the data. Holy shit. It was, a it, it was done. And if you really spend time around breeders, real breeders, then you realize that you, you're, you're a hobbyist in that regard. Spend time with someone who invented like, you know, GMO corn where they're like, you know, no, what I did is I, I modified a genome. So now we can produce enough corn to feed 1.2 billion people. Um, there, there's, there's levels to the game. And when you start to play with these people at that level, you understand, oh, I got you. You're not, a, I'm not a real breeder. And like I said, my mom was a research geneticist. I grew up in a house with a woman doing fruit fly experiments. What I know is that if you're not that, you're not the, that title. And that's why I never call myself. I get called constantly, but I'm not. 
I'm a selector. I work with breeders, helping them understand what it is the market wants and needs and what the cultivator wants and needs and what the processing manufacturing supply chain wants and needs. And then it lets me come in and work with them in huge populations so we can say, okay, let's look for the outliers and mark them and now look for those traits on the, on the tree and start to figure out how do we identify those traits in the progeny so that we can do more selective work. And so at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's was probably the most controversial thing I've ever been involved in. And it, it was this idea that I was like nefarious where I had sold all these genes to them. And I didn't, they were all genes that I open sourced so that never in history could anybody take your OG Kush cut, a sour cut, any of that shit. You can't own it either and say to someone else, they can't have it. And that's really what pissed people off is because people started to think that this is mine. And I'm like, how can it be yours if I gave it to you? Yeah, exactly. That that's that's a really awesome recount of the whole series of events from your perspective. You know, I certainly certainly can appreciate it from your point of view much more than before hearing that. So, Woo! you know, I, I'm I'm in your school of thought. You know, I um I don't think anyone was really expecting it in that sense. But it's cool to hear they're still producing some work. As a as a quick follow up, I'd love to know. Um, do you think we will get to the point where the genomic testing does what? everyone dreams of it doing where you can test any random plant and it'll tell you exactly where it's all coming from. No. Yeah, no, no, it can't because you have to have something to compare it to. If I don't have a, if I don't have a DNA tree, a trail, it's just, it just, you get to sequence it. But if there's nothing that you can compare it to from that place, then you don't know that it came from that place until you go to that place and find something that you can mark and say, Oh, look, this is indicative of Pakistan. This is indicative to the Milana Valley in India. It'll never give us that info, but it doesn't have to. That's not what it's really for. It's, it's to allow you to use a, a, a tool that helps really speed up populations. If you're trying to get to a, a result, speed is kind of important. So without using genomics, it's kind of like AI, right? So like, what's a good example? An AI group speaks to me and we're, we've been talking about a project. And so they, they're not cannabis AI. They're just big ag AI, which is what they provide is they provide the AI to big ag. And so they reach out to me and say, hey, we want to talk to you about using AI in the development of cannabis. And, you know, how do you, and how do we speak to the, the computer? What's the questions we ask? What do we do? And so I started to do my own research on it so I could kind of better understand the tool. But when I sat down with some of their lead breeders, it was that an individual can look at maybe 2,000 things. Using genomics, you can look at 900,000 things. Using AI on top of genomics, you can look at 900 million different things. So when you start, when you start to get up into this idea that we can like explode this, we can start to look for things that are patterns that we just can't look at. And the computer says, Hey, this is some interesting shit over here. Let's explore it. And the computer allows you to choose plants. You would have in a million years chose. And when you put them together, what you get is unbelievably unique combinations that we just don't have the ability to understand at this time. And so to me, 
that's why I've always been involved in all these different operations of this of this type is that I need to understand where I'm going to land. I'm not worrying about where I am today. I'm always worrying about where I'm going to end up. And so what I know is that I have to look down the road and say, okay, if we're going to go and get heavy into something, when does it coincide? When does it connect, tie and intersect with someone who has better resources? And with the genes, it's critical to understand it because the minute you have schedule three, you, what you have in the United States now is the ability for real companies to come in that can take financial risk because it is because of the, the schedule one. If a real company, one that's global, was to put an operation in the U.S., they could theoretically lose it to the federal government because it's illegal. Right. So the state. So there's a state law and there's a defense. And, and I had this conversation with with enough of these people to understand that they're at a level financially that they don't really care if they're in cannabis right now. The day they get in cannabis is when it's right for them. And the minute they're here, they will change it at a pace that'll be frightening because they can spend $2 million a day on R&D only. So what I know is that that combined with marketing, combined with license, combined with, with what happens when you put enough money into political systems, all of a sudden, like, where, where do we exist? And so the, the existence is really as a small craft operator, to me, is to go and find the ability to, to, to find a lane where this profile is attractive and you only sell 1,100 pounds of it and you know that the world can accept 1,100 pounds of your unique profile and you're able to stay within a very specific situation, that plant. And if, and if the plant's lucrative enough, you can be approached by a larger brand to say, hey, we want to produce another 5,000 pounds of it under these constraints, meaning we'll do it in living soil as well. well. We'll do it as how you say. And to me, that's like the cotton candy grape. So you got a grape in the U.S. that's just, it took me a year to find a batch of that shit. I, I don't care where I went. It was sold out when I got there. I finally caught it from a grape dealer who had a bunch of different grapes on a stand. And I was able to experience it firsthand because it's so hot. They can't hold it in the store and it sells for twice the price. And so the individual that bred it, they produce it, but they also license that grape to other individuals. And, and to me, that's, that's how this world will work. And we just have to understand that, that when we get into the future, it's, it'll be like every other industry. You won't have a choice. It, there's, there's Samsonite. Samsonite makes a lot more luggage than Louis Vuitton. But Louis holds a really good place, and but Louis was real. Louis Louis sold you know luggage to the Zarina. He, he sold it to the, the the elite. He was an incredible sewer. He did something unique. It wasn't just hype, and he launched a, a reputation that they maintained with meticulous quality. So why can't why can't we copy those luxury brand models the same way, and allow the larger corporations to do what they do? Because you don't have any control of them. You can't really tell them what they can and can't do. Yeah, hugely. And and this is actually an idea I've been really trying to push for a number of years now because there are some people in the community who get 
quite upset when someone tries to produce a really high-end product. And I try to point out at the same time that a lot of these people probably aspire to have a nice Mercedes or something like that. And it's like, why can't we have luxury items within our field? Why can't people be allowed to strive to produce a really high-end product? Oh, without, without doubt. What we have now is high-end branding. And there's some and there's some farms that produce some good herbs. No, no question. There's some really good grass floating around the world. It's just that the the cost of pushing the marketing, the cost of getting all that hype, how do you do it? You have to give up a chunk of your company. When you give up a chunk of your company, now you're having to satisfy someone else's desires and needs. So now you start to lose control. And at the end of the day, it's 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 a frightening thing for many people because they got into cannabis because they were in control. It lets you have control of your basic day-to-day function where when you went to work, it was under your direction. You made the choice. I used to, I, I used to work around the clock. I had operations all over the place, right? I was a nut. So, I mean, I'm running operations that, that it made sense for me to go there at midnight. It made sense for me to pull in the driveway at six in the morning. Every spot I created and built and lit up, I would enter and exit that place at the appropriate times because I could, because I didn't have a normal life. I was, I'm a, I'm a career dope grower, right? So I'm jumping from scene to scene, lighting these things up and it allowed me to be me. So like I had to, when I wanted, when I realized this world was going to change, I had to take a job at a dispensary and mind you, it was running it, but. I hadn't had a job in like 25 years. I had to go take a job so that I could learn how to be normal again and show up on a schedule that wasn't the one that I lived on, which was 24-7. So like there's a period of time it takes you to acclimate from what we used to do and how we did it to what you're going to be currently doing. And you got to practice before you get there or it's just a shock. You don't just transition like this. You know, it's like for me, I'm white. Maybe I, I go out in the sun, I get a bad burn. I have to condition myself and I work outside in the summer. So if I'm not wearing a hat and putting on some shit, I'm looking like a barbecue potato chip. And I don't care how many years I've been doing this, right? So every season I have to acclimate slowly to the intensity of the sun or I just get horrifically burned. And to me, that's the same process you have to go through to go from where we were, who we were, to where we want to be and who we are. You you have to give up the control. Yeah, hugely. I can definitely um, appreciate the point you're making about people being so used to the autonomy and having to just relax a little bit. I think being a good grower sort of makes you a bit of a control freak in certain regards. But um, in in your last answer, you know, you're talking about defining your own path with unique. And I wanted to ask you about a plant that I saw from your Instagram page that seemed incredibly unique. I remember the post basically spoke about how you have a skunk plant that is essentially the same skunk that Sam the skunk man had used to genetically map it or something somewhere. Do you know, did I read yeah, that correctly? Yeah, I do. I do it. I got a car. No, I didn't. It, 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 it was from uh, Salmon Creek. So it was in the Salmon Creek area since the early eighties. And then I got it when Lawrence passed away. So me and Lawrence Ringo were friends. And when he passed away, there was just uh, anytime you lose the patriarch of a family, there's some chaos and some plants started uh, dying off. 
And so the person that was the librarian said, hey, could you could you take this plant and and hang on to it? And it was and I said, what's the story on? They said it's an old skunk out from 1981 out of Salmon Creek, which is a, a huge production watershed directly across from my hill. I'm in Miranda. Salmon Creek's across the river. And so I said, sure. So I I have it DNA and it matches up with uh, the one that Sam had entered. Right. So for whatever reason, it, it ties in genetically. But it was uh, it was stunning in the sense that it was the old. It wasn't the skunk that I was seeking, which is what we're all seeking, like that. The urine skunk. It was this musky, floral, rich. But I mean, to the level that when you cut some clones from it, it would fill a building. Like you didn't have to flower the plant to release the volatile sulfurs. You could just cut the plant as a plant and it literally filled the building. It was incredibly, incredibly volatile and pungent. And it, it I was fascinated because it, it, it started really making me want to go back to the, the times prior when I had a lot of these type of plants and it kind of lit a spark to go on that skunk hunt. And I, I dove into that pool. I, I was ended up getting a, an 88 cut out of Spain shipped in. And so a company in Spain had held it since 88, and they had used it as a foundation uh, line in a lot of their work. So I had these two cuts that were really pretty unique in their own regard. But even when I went into them and I went into other populations, I never pulled up what I found. And and I know I know it, I know it's there somewhere. There's no there's no mystery or miracle. It's just a matter of when you you're going to see it with the OGs right now, where right now everybody's starting to release gas seeds again and everybody's trying to buy gas seeds. Aficionado just did a nice release. So they did um, the Larry to the Sky, which they got from me back in 2010 from the HPRC. So those things that were just being sold normally, you can't find at all anymore. And so he, he, he releases gas into the world again. And it's because nobody kept the cut. Everybody went candy gas. And if you give it 10 years, I'd like to see how many gelato 41s are floating around. Because it's the same thing. Once it gets out of vogue, you don't keep it. Yeah, definitely. That's an interesting point. 10 years from now, where will the gelatos be? I, I like that a lot. And you're right. It's, it's very circular. It's like fashion things come and go there's a quick follow-up that old skunk cutting the one that's the same as sam's what's the effect like and and do you think it's got one of those old world highs where it's it doesn't have a ceiling or what how would you describe it no it had a ceiling it was just really nice it was good feel weed most of the dutch skunks you know the the only the only skunks that had like a really brutal grizzly effect were the super acrid ones and they were almost a little rough so for people who, uh, you know, they didn't want that beating, they didn't smoke it. They went for the more lighter profiled ones. But for, for me, you know, I, I, I didn't mind the fact that it made my eyes bloodshot and I didn't mind that it made my tongue feel like it was coated and that I, I had, a, you know, swamp breath. I didn't mind that it just, it took control of me. Like, wow, like you're reeling under the weight of the high. I enjoyed that. But, uh, you know, many didn't. And so it, that, that's the thing. It uh, the, the one, the 81 and the 88, the 88 was more like a burnt rubber. And that had a sharper edged high. I want to say almost reminds me more like of a Mexican effect. But the, the 81 was, was more like a warm blanket enveloping 
relaxing, you know, big, thick, full smoke. But it would be it would be tough to sell that today. You couldn't sell that shit. You, you'd have to rename it completely and you'd have to rely on the odor because the numbers, the numbers never lined up. Probably, you know, maybe 16, maybe 16. I think the numbers came out at. So you put that on a, on a, on a label. That shit's not going. And it was, you know, really hairy and, and, and kind of fluffy red, you know, beautiful herb, but not the, not the, the nuggy hand grenade that people want to see today and definitely wasn't purple. So it's tough, you know, and, and you put skunk one, it's a beak waste. Everybody's got skunk one. Nobody wants it. They, they, you need to say, you know, the piss skunk or, or something that, and then prove it. So that's the issue with some of those is that they don't have a place except in your heart. And they, they, they have a place in terms of, they let you mark things in a, a timeline. So when you touch that, you get to see, to me, when I look at plants, what I look at is the world that you're in shapes what's sold. So your so your sociological conditions influence what people consume and why they consume it. The world around you shaping your desire. And when I can look at 30, 40 years worth of plants, it lets me look at the populations that consumed it differently because these plants were unbelievably um, valuable at that time. They sold a tremendous amount of flour. That means many, many, many people enjoyed consuming it. It lets me get a window into what the people of the world were doing at that time. And so when you get into our era, it'll be easy to say, hey, look at these plants and look at how the focus went to visual. Because what do we do? We spend most of our time looking at visuals on phones. What's the next one? So once we get past this one, what's the next technical sociological revolution that occurs that absolutely impacts how we see a thing? And that'll that that's like that's the question. And that's the one I really can't answer because what's going to be the breakthrough that changes it? Because we can't smell herb in the stores anymore. You can't look at the shit. If you can look at it, it means it's getting light degradation through the package. So you're damaging the weed. So you gotta seal the weed so you can't see it. You can't open it and smell it. So you have no idea what you're getting. So how do you sell it? You're selling it off of the bud tenders, steering people into choices. And the idea that somebody, and it's not a knock to bud tenders because I've met some brilliant ones. It's just that for so many, it's an introductory level job and they don't haven't, they haven't had enough time to be able to really work with a population or many populations long enough to kind of see patterns. And so it makes it, it makes it kind of hard to get accurate assistance. You know, that was like, that was the whole point of, you know, the Gangier, where to develop a common language, common rating systems, common terminology, so that when someone went into a store, they could say the same thing in every store and almost every person that worked at a store could say the same thing. When you go to a butcher shop, they don't call hamburger filet mignon. They call it hamburger, right? So you don't have to go, oh, I need the meat that's, that's run through the machine that they go hamburger. Everybody says the same thing, hamburger. It allows you to go, I need hamburger. And it, it makes it easy. And that's our issue is that we're, we're, we're so confused in terminology that no one has an idea. I think the statistics are something like 85% of the people that come out of a store couldn't tell you the name of the brand when they get home. Wow. 
They don't know the name of the brand. 85%, right? 15% are going, yeah. So what? why does cookies work? Because you go into a cookie store. But if you go into any, and, and cookie sells other products as well, but you're getting a cookie collection of products, which then lets them monitor the velocity of those products. And it lets them know, are the sales declining in a thing or increasing or staying the same? And that lets us at the R&D facility know, do we need to produce more things? Do we need to create more things? Do we have enough things? Is this something that should be run for another six months? Is this something that should be retired? Because you're able to monitor the data. And then you're able to understand the consumer's buying patterns. But it's miserable for small operators because you're competing against bigger brands that can come in and, and kind of overwhelm the the storefront, so to speak, with choices and selections. And so, you know, it, it, it becomes a, a huge amount of effort for the small operator. They have to basically go to every dispensary that sells their product and spend some time with the, the sales team. In a perfect world, they'd actually bring them out to the farm so they could see what products were being created and then understand why you choose it and what you're doing. So this way, when the tender has someone come in that says, hey, what I really like is, um, you know, organic sun-grown herb just seems to vibe with me better as a person, and I would like it to have a great flavor, then the person says, oh, I got you. I know some organic sun-grown farms that we sell from the store. Then they can quickly look and say, okay, there's a couple here that have some flavor profiles that, that say perp, that say grape. That whole thing took us 15 seconds. But And that's what you need is these quick quick transitions of customer to purchase to leave because no customer wants to spend three hours in the store trying to buy a bag of grass it's they just don't you know it's a social thing for some but let's say 95 percent just want to go in and buy when i go buy milk i don't want to spend three hours getting a backstory on the cow that they squeeze the milk from i just want the damn milk yeah, brilliant. And, you know, it's it's so true, right? A lot of people are really sort of going in with limited background knowledge. And as you said, 80% of the time, that's a staggering statistic. I'm going to jump on, you mentioned Gungier, definitely wanted to chat about that. And I know that mm -hmm. you're credited as the co-founder slash founder of that. So the first thing to talk about, what was the genesis of it like? How did this idea come about? Oh, shit. Well, originally, the, the genesis was I was in the kitchen at my house with my son, my teenage son. So my son's, he's uh, 20, 20, 28, be 29, but he was probably, you know, like 15, 16 at the time. And so we're hanging out and I'm talking to him and I'm like, what do I call myself? Because I'd always been a dope grower, right? But I, but I was running a nursery and I was doing storefront work and I was like, I was doing so much different stuff that I didn't really know my job title. And we were laughing. It was like, it was like, I'm like, who, who am I? Like, like when, when someone says to you and you have to answer it in a one word, you know, you know, or one sentence answer, how do you give someone one sentence when you're doing 10 different jobs at scale? Like, cause I was hitting it at that time. And I was like, who am I? And my son looked at me and he goes, dad, you're a Gangier. You're a cannabis culturalist. And I said, whoa, that's heavy. He said, yeah. He goes, you do all things herb. Like that's your life. And so it was just this killer name. And I went back to my business with my team and said, hey, my son came up with a cool name. We should do like a blog. And they said, no, let's create an entertainment company. 
So we created a platform called the Gangier when it was a website. And it was the first place that a lot of different individuals got to write on because what we did, we got to seek people that I thought were, were competent in their respective craft and allowed them a place to, to speak. And it, it was meant so that when individuals that were, were looking in the world of cannabis for answers, there was a place where the people that were on a platform actually should be answering questions. And then we turned it into the Golden Tarp Awards, which was the cannabis competition I created. And then we used it for all our spring seed events. So we use it as this, this incredible entertainment education platform locally that just killed it for what we did with it. You know, I mean, we were absolutely bringing bodies into seats at all these venues. And the Cannabis Cup we created was the second largest in America to this day outside of Tim Blake's Emerald Cup. So, I mean, we were bigger than any High Times Cup. We were bigger than any Dope Cup. I mean, like we nailed it right out the gate. And, and it was because we were trying to really build an awareness of the future. It, it was, I wasn't trying to pay homage to the past continuously. I, I've been there. I mean, I'm, I'm living it real time. I'm like, we need to focus on the future. Otherwise, we're going to be living in the past. And that's not where you really live. You live in the past when you're 90. But you young and you're living in the past. You have a problem. And so we used it to drive a momentum and it was it was a really a successful situation, but the world of cannabis cups came to a close just because it becomes such a, a unbelievably financially burdensome type venue. Like most of these are basically you're riding sponsors, and so the world ended for that. And I just said hey, it doesn't make any sense. And I had been doing a bunch of education for Green Flower, and they approached me and said, "Hey, we'd like to buy the the name and the, the brand from you." And then we had this idea about taking what you're doing and creating a certification. And I had been asked to do one prior, but I didn't think that I was smart enough to do one. I didn't think that, I didn't think anybody was. I didn't think any one person was bright enough to cover the world of weed. It's like, to me, weed was so huge that just to say you think you had your hand around it meant you didn't. And so... I said to them, same thing. I don't think we can do it. And they said, no, no, Kev, we, we, we reached out and created a team and we want to let you see who the team is. And I took a look at the team and it was such a well-rounded group. It was, you know, 17 other people from every facet of the industry. And to me, that was enough people to have a pretty good perspective on this industry. And I said, hey, I can support that. So I'm down. Let's let, let me, let me, um, I'll become a, a partner in Greenflower. You guys can take the Gangier. I'll come in and, and help do whatever I can to steer and build this hundred year vision you have, which is standardizing language and creating an ability for the customer, any customer consumer to have a full awareness and of understanding on how to look at a very complex topic in a manner that benefits them. It wasn't meant for the, the, the sale. It was really at the end of the day, how do people who are coming into weed, how do they get an education that allows them to actually maximize their value and their experience?
Yeah, definitely. That's cool to hear. I didn't know that it, it had like such a long-standing organic development. That's really awesome to hear the way it progressed. And I guess my first question is, do you like, you know, hope that one day it becomes the cannabis equivalent of like the W set wine and spirit qualification, like something like that, where it's maybe going to get people like certain jobs might open up with that or what sort of your long-term vision with it? I do. It's doing that right now. My long-term vision is the ability to be able to create an awareness of product quality. There's two points on the data line you need to know. What's the absolute best regardless of price? And what's the best for the price? And those two points give us the two places we need to exist in the world of weed. 90% of the people are going to want what's best at a price. 10 want, want what's best at any price. So how do we differentiate them? It has to be through a grading system. It has to be, and it has to be a defensible system. It has to be one, just like with wine. You have to be able to say, hey, I evaluated it. And these are the things that I noticed. And these are the things I liked. And these are the things I did not. And you have to be able to communicate it to somebody in a way that they can believe, both producer and consumer. And so we, we spent like, I'm, I swear to God, we spent something like 7,000 man hours over two years developing that program. Oh, the fights were unreal until you're brawling it out with Frenchie and he's yelling at you in that accent. You haven't had a good time because we're all fighting over not who's right, but what's best, what matters. And it was the first time I think I'd ever been involved in a cannabis endeavor where the participants really, for the absolute most part, were really trying to work together collaboratively to figure out what is a well-rounded education and then what is an assessment. And what was nice was that Derek Gilman's desire was really, he had an affinity for small farms. And so he wanted it to be able to really highlight the fact that these small farms had products that were rating in the high 90s, but they had like, you know, low 30s on their marketing. The high 90 on the package should really help with the marketing. And so Derek, which was awesome because like, you know, I'm a, I'm a small farmer, but you need to have the people that are like managing partners also have that same vision or it just isn't the same thing. So having Derek as the managing partner was excellent. And Derek is a really, really talented cultivator and he's a extremely knowledgeable person in the history of cannabis consumption, all the devices and the gear and the details and the history. Like he's a fucking true cannabis aficionado. He's a ganjier. And so getting to work with him as the managing partner was killer because it, it allowed there to be a genuine nature of, we want to help the small person out, but it has to be fair because at the end of the day, it can't favor them. But typically when you create programs, the small farmer is actually excluded. And in this case, it was he was the focus and the bigger farmer wasn't um, excluded. So it, it, it changed the focus on quality, not scale. And what it did is it allowed a lot of the people that came through. What, what I say is the impact of the Gangier is there's over $2 billion in cannabis sold around the world under Gangier graduates. So the people that have come through the program, I mean, name a big business, their, their lead buyers have come through, their teams have come through, international teams, because at the end of the day, they started to really understand 
that they needed a more in-depth education on what is the quality of cannabis and they weren't getting it from inside their own business. They, and, and having it, you know, focused in Humboldt County allows us to be able to showcase many small farms, many craft operators, and it allows people to be able to see different levels of production and the quality that results from it. And the byproduct of that is it started to create the desire for some of these larger companies to create better relationships with the small farmers around them because they started to understand that when you're constrained by investment on a brand, the only way you can bring in new product outside of your line that fits your 62-day cycle, you're mandated to follow, is to do it in collaboration with the small farmer. So what you do is you get to work on these projects and every project that was set up worked. Everything that we helped them understand functioned for the business and the farmer. The farmer got paid, the business got paid. So once you start getting people to make money, they'll listen to you. I mean, that's just the truth. Like you don't have to like me, but if I steered you into a wealth, you'll you'll listen to me pretty much when when the when the phone rings. And and that's what we tried to do here was we tried to help the the people that came through understand that this is the world of cannabis today and because you have so many diverse people that you can you can function with within in the ganjier it should help you really be able to refine your direction so so many people are you know i noticed burned out in their jobs and they they have you know they're brilliant and successful but they really don't feel positive about their day-to-day job and they want to get into cannabis the ganjier helps them get an education and then it also lets them get part of a of a, a group and start to understand better where do I fit in? How do I make the best choices? I mean, it's just, I think it's the best part of the Ganjia is the community. I didn't expect it to be so kind and supportive. You know, I figured that we put this program together, we're going to get some cool people coming through and the end result will be really positive. I just didn't expect to see how many people wanted to come in and actually maintain the relationships between the students, the support groups, the help groups, the study groups, the networking, the affiliations. It, it was incredible. There was a woman named Elizabeth Sage who put together a student group that in, in life, in, if, if one could have a student like Liz Sage come through your world, you'd be grateful because they're masters of connection and coordination. And they come through and they become very impressed with the program. And they say, hey, I feel so good about it. I want to bring my talent into it. And the next thing you know, you're having rivers of people getting together to work together, practice, refine, and develop. So that then that's it's it's really a beautiful program. For me as an instructor, it's um it's humbling to be able to be in the presence of so many beautiful people. I mean, I mean that's some corny shit, but it's real. I just never I never get tired of the students. You know, it, it's it's a gift to be able to have them come through Humboldt County. And it's a incredible experience because so many of them are so incredibly intelligent. So when you're getting people that are brilliant in their respective worlds and they're coming in, if your game's not on point, it won't work. So it it forces us as the instructors to stay on top of what's taking place. And to always make sure that we're refining what we're doing and developing along with the program and acknowledging that, you know, we're only us. 
So that way, what people understand is that there really is no top to this ladder. It's it's a new industry. We haven't even scratched the surface. None of us know where it's going to go. And because of that, that humility allows people to be able to approach it from a much, much more, let's say, gentle perspective. What a beautiful sentiment. I love it. That's awesome that you feel such a deep connection to it all and great to hear some of the the inner workings behind how it all goes down. I wanted to ask you, this is like a sort of a personal curiosity, but I think your experience with the program will help you. I found that I was personally able to get really deeply passionate about cannabis when I started to develop a bit of a palate. And then as time's gone by, I've started to wonder, sometimes I feel like I'm not sure whether you develop a palate over time or whether some people are just inclined to sort of have it and others it may never really come in to the same degree as certain other people. What's your experience? Do you feel that you can get better at picking up on the nuance of things over time or is it sort of a a bit more random and universal, so to speak? I think it's a little bit of both. I think you have to have the the olfactory senses. Some people, like my father, for example, has no sense of smell. So my dad, you know, you could smoke weed in the house. My father wouldn't know because he couldn't smell. He could see the smoke, but he couldn't smell. And so people like that, well, they'll never be able to do that. And then it also impacted his taste. So food didn't have the same flavor. A lot of things just were very bland. So someone like that, well, you're kind of stuck. But with most, it's about exposure. And so what I did is I really took a look at people who use their olfactory abilities to a high level. And we would say people from perfume, people from wine. And the people who were best at it, the ones that they really consider like prodigies, all of them have one thing in common. They all came from an area where there was an incredible amount of diversity of scent. So they weren't from urban environments. They were from the country. And they were able to pick up all the nuances that impact the thing that they're judging. And so what, what you do is you start to teach yourself how to identify odor. And a, the, a good way to highlight this is that when gas was red hot, there was a fuel depot near my shop and my friend was the manager of it. And so I would go over there after work and I could go and sniff all the different types of petroleum products, gear oil, kerosene, diesel, um, uh, gasoline cut with, uh, with uh, alcohol, race fuel, you know, JP5 if they had jet fuel barrels coming in. So what it did is it it let me develop this incredible knowledge of petroleum odor so that when I was looking at plants, I would be able to say, okay, it's gas, but what kind of gas? And I started to notice certain preferences in the public for certain types of gas in certain places. And so you start to see these patterns of consumption and what people choose and what they like. But by me spending time at the fuel depot sniffing fuel, I was able to understand it. And then I needed to get a development in fruit and floral. So I go into um, fruit stands and I go into spice shops and I just go through and spend an hour just smelling and looking at the product and sniffing it and just trying to start to understand the differences between some of them. And, you know, what are they? So that I have an ability to recognize it and at least say, hey, this, this has an odor of cardamom. This is more like cedar. 
so that when someone smells it, you can you can say to them, what, what do you like? And they say, I like I like woody things. And you're like, what do you like oak or what do you like cedar? Oh, I like cedar better than oak. And now what we're doing is we're steering people into their desires by using readily available terms that we can both agree on. And so the only way that you can really develop this is through practice. And then what you what you start to be able to pick up is that terroir. And the, the terroir is different than the French because theirs is so much, or Italians in, in grape form because the grape was developed there. But for us in Humboldt County, our air quality and our water quality and the microbiome that's floating around the plant itself because of the forests impacts a flavor that when people come from out of the area and, and they're evaluating, we've just noticed over a thousand people, the flavor of Humboldt is what comes out all the time. Like I know this plant, but this flavor is different. And when they describe it, we realize, wow, that's the flavor of Humboldt. It's the impact of the air, the, the biology, and the water shaping. And so for the ability for them to come and see that allows them to understand that they can also have regional impact in, in their locations. And if we were in Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, we'd be able to say, hey, we have true terroir because the plant was here before we were. When we showed up 1,500 years ago in the valley, the plants were already here. And so now that plant expresses itself fully in that environment because that's the natural relationship that occurred that allowed now's you that that now allows you to be able to take that and and market it correctly so that people say, Oh, I got you. I really liked it, but the only place I can get that is there. And then the ability for you to say, these are the flavors that you should find. These are the odors that we noticed. And then the high, you describe how it affects you, but that's one that's pretty, I say we're not snowflakes, but we would say that everyone has their own edge on how things affect, but we can at least talk about the delivery and how it affected you and then, then the drop off afterwards. But being able to, to do that is just, it, it's, it's an incredible feeling. And so it gets, it's kind of fun to play. It's fun to go to your friend's house and smell the spice straw. It's cool to go to a, I, I like to look at, you know, solvents. I go to like earthy related stuff where I want to go smell different types of leather. So you go to the leather shop and then you go and you go through the backyard and you look for all the decaying wood. You move the leaves and you smell the mycelium. You go into tobacco and you start to, you start to get an idea of different aging of tobacco, kind of like tea, the fermentation of it changes the scent profile. All those things impact what we do. And I think those are the things that, they're the most fun with cannabis because you can do them with people that don't smoke. Yeah, hugely, hugely the most fun. And, you know, as you just ran through, you know, the, the myriad of different smells there, I just had so many memories come to mind and you you get taken back with certain smells. It's a cool thing, right? And while we're on the topic of uh, smells and flavors, one of our listeners wanted to ask specifically, can you give us a bit of your breakdown on your different flavors, you know, they'd heard that you've got your fuel, fruit, floral, earth sort of system. Can you, yeah, totally. can you give us some more info? Yeah. The, what I noticed was I had just noticed a pattern that when I was quantifying plants and libraries, like where do you place them? I said, you know, I can basically put any plant I find in one of four categories. 
and it was earth, fruit, fuel, and floral. And fuel at the time was chemical because chemical solvent and fuel go together to me. But I used to call it chemical until gas really came on heavy. And it worked. It let me have like very different profiles in my libraries. And it, it allowed me to build nurseries for people that gave them diversity. And I started to notice um, who consumed those profiles. So I started to see patterns of consumption based off of those odor profiles. And as the years go by, it's a tool that I use frequently. And we get into the golden tarp era. And when I create the golden tarp judging, I said, hey, let's use a lab to do our analytics so that we can neck down the cup to 16 instead of 250. But if we don't put it in categories, it'll be a numbers cup. So let me use the categories. And what that'll do is that'll let us have the, the four best of each category go against each other. And each one of those categories will be combined metabolites and cannabinoids. And so what it did is it allowed us to have 32% THC fuels going head to head with 11% earths. So it, it allowed me to get a really good diversified numbers cup in a way that the cultivators could understand. And that's what allowed that cup to be so successful because I create the judging criteria before I actually start the cup. And it was accepted. And But what it did was it gave me this massive data set. And so in the like the fourth year of the cup, I have a scientist from UCLA come and speak to me. And, and there's, a, there's some other work I'm doing simultaneously. So like we'll say that in the fourth year of the cup, I have a scientist come and speak to me about my data sets. What was happening in the interim was DNA hadn't come out yet. And so you didn't really have, when I first came up with this, you didn't have an ability to map from DNA. And so what I did is I said, can I map by secondary metabolite profile? Can I map by the volatile profile? So I went and hired some scientists, some PhD scientists from the local university. And we went on a project to figure out, could we map cannabis by its secondary metabolite profile? And after diving down that rabbit hole and spending the money as the person funding the project, I realized that we couldn't because they were too variable and that terpenes were only a very small portion of how we perceived the total. And it was these thiols and these esters and these volatile sulfurs and ketones and all these other components. And so I said, okay. And the scientist said, your, 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 the way you're doing it right now works perfectly. It's just perception by odor in the four categories. So I already had scientists from the university I'm working with trying to map. We failed in the mapping, but it, it substantiated better why my system worked. So I felt comfortable with it as a tool. But when when a scientist named John Abrams approached me, he was a, he still is, he's a brilliant scientist. And he, at the time he was involved with UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. And so he approaches me and he says, Hey, um, I'd love to look at the data on your work. I'd like to, you know, take a look at your hypothesis. And I said, sure. And I didn't know that he was working on his own scent categorization as well. And so he was coming to look at mine and he was challenging mine because I'm not a scientist. And so I come up with this at the time it was revolutionary. No one, ever, no one, no one broke, can't still have it. Nobody's broke it down to this degree. And so I said, well, check it out. I said, I feel pretty comfortable with it as a tool, but I don't have any real proof 
that everything fits into this because we really don't have the tools. But I'll give you all the data from four years of competitions and you can take it and then you can take a look at it back at the university with your team. And so then he drives down and meets me at an event in Carpinteria that I'm working on. And he says, Kev, he goes, you got to see this. I mean, he drove all the way to Carpinteria to talk to me. And he unrolled the documents and he's like, look at this. He said, we've been working on this for years and we couldn't figure this out. And what they didn't understand was they, they were able to say that they can clearly see a floral cluster. They could clearly see a fuel cluster. They could see, clearly see a fruit cluster. But earth to them was degraded cannabis because the numbers were low and the measurable metabolites were low. And what they didn't understand because they weren't growers was that those plants produce less metabolites that we measure, not in total because we're not measuring the total package, but in measurable under, under the current level of lab analysis. But the plants produce those because they don't need to produce anymore. The metabolites are produced as a stress response. They're produced to either attract or repel. So the idea that something like Gorilla Glue, which we would call earthy or Bubba Kush as faulty is completely wrong. It's just that they couldn't mentally wrap their heads around it. And I was able to say, hey, this is how you have to see it. Because what I had really discovered was that if we look at the earth, the, earth, the latitude is dictating these profiles. And so zero to 25, you're really into the floral fruits. And 25 to 40, you start going into earths and gases. And gas is a primary, earth's a subset. Floral's a primary, fruit's a subset. And what it's based off of is location on the latitude that said these plants can only exist here if they have these profiles due to, due to necessity. And then people steered the outcome by selection. So I started to be able to say, look, if we look at floral profiles, we should be able to say that people who want uplifting cannabis will buy that mostly. When I started doing the data analysis, what was the number one seller in any tech area? Floral varieties. And so you start to be able to quickly say, okay, people on the equator to 25 had abundant food, abundant water, plenty of, plenty of uh, living conditions. Where does all the, 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 the thought-provoking drugs come from? There. Because they're not worrying about trying to survive a brutal winter. Where do the narcotics come from? 25 to 40. And why is that for those individuals? Because they're having to deal with very hard life, less water, less food, high mountain deserts, you know, 10 inches of rain, freezing cold. So you need to be able to be narcotically sedated through the cold winter. And the very thing you do is difficult. And so the region latitude dictates the profiles, the people steer the populations to fit what they need. And so what it does, it allows us to be able to say, where do gas profiles sell most? People who want to get most high. Where else? Pain. What about fruit? Lighter, brighter, high, newer users. Fruit was never that popular really until vape. Once vape comes in, everybody wants fruit because they're hitting the vape. And so I did a shitload of tobacco research so I could understand the patterns of consumption that the tobacco companies had figured out. And then I just overlaid all of this over all my own research and my own intuition and out comes this, this 
four categories of perception that just kill it because they actually really do work well because I didn't really invent anything. I just saw the patterns and I put all the pieces together in synthesis. So invention to me is, you know, came out of thin air with it. I had seen the pattern. I recognized that these things from these places had these effects. I knew it couldn't be random. And I knew that if I looked at as many plants as I had seen over the course of my life, there wasn't any of them that I couldn't put in one of those categories. And so it just created this really powerful, simple tool that when we started using with the data collection, it worked perfectly. And if you look at the data from the United States, specifically California, California goes into medical in the 96. So from 96 to say 2018, you got 22 years, 22 years of data from the largest medical recommendation provider in the state. You can imagine the size of that data set. What you find is 95% of the people came in to those offices to get a recommendation for one of four issues, sleep, pain, appetite, or mood. And we can lay each one of those into a category cleanly. And so there's these weird anomalies where you just see these clusters of patterns. And when you really start to step back and look at it, you go, wow, it's that simple. Because cannabis isn't multiple species. It's a single species that was dispersed around the earth and spread. So we know from what we know, the history that we know is that cannabis comes from Mongolia, plains of the region. It moves down into Asia, sits around for a couple thousand years, shifts into Europe shifts down, goes into Africa, goes into the Americas five or 600 years ago, moves up. We're the last ones really to have it, North Americans. So we're the, we're the least familiar with the product, but we're, you know, 80% of the herbs, world's herb consumption. So if you really take a look at the, the pattern, it lays out really well. And once the scientists started to really attack it and then prove it right, they adopted it. And so Abrams adopts it as a tool. He brings it forth through the Emerald Scientific Conference, which he's the chair of. I get introduced as the person who found it. What really kind of laid it in place was there was a guy named Dr. Nasha who's doing brainwave analysis of cannabis. And he said, if you consume different types of cannabis, we should get a different brainwave readout. That was his hypothesis. So he goes and buys different kinds of cannabis, has people smoke it, and, and they have the same exact result. And he said, wow, all herb is the same. And Abrams reads the study and says, no, I don't think so. I think you did the experiment wrong. And Nasha's like, no, I did everything right. I went to the store and I bought four different kinds of cannabis, different names, all this stuff. And he goes, no, no, let me provide the cannabis based off of these categories and let's redo the experiment. And when they did, bam, four radically different brain waves appeared. Wow. So... It, it, it's been substantiated enough times and then it's been used over and over and over again by companies all over the world that reached out to me privately and said, hey, we heard about the, the categories. Could we use them? And I'm like, totally. It's a tool that I, I'd love to see people use because it makes it easy to really neck down these massive populations and understand the demographics. Who buys earth? Older people typically. Who's buying floral? People that are in, in tech. Who's buying fuel? People who want to get really high, people who want pain relief, appetite, and people who are on a budget 
because you can consume less fuel and be high longer more because of the, the cannabinoid concentration. So you don't get higher, but you have more cannabinoids circulating in your system. So you should stay high longer. It's a price function. So people that are poorer almost always go to fuel. You, it's rare that you go into a, a store with less money and say, I want to enjoy the experience. You're like, no, I want to get high. I want gas. Wow, that's a that's a really sort of keen observation I hadn't heard sort of articulated before. I really like that. And you know what? When I think about it, it sort of makes sense as, as far as I can tell. So there you go, guys. What did you think? Thanks for joining us for part one. And a massive thank you to Kev for joining us today. And a massive shout out to you guys for getting to the end. We appreciate you so much. Just like we appreciate our incredible sponsors. If you want to help support the show, support our sponsors. Massive shout out to Seeds here now. Don't forget, guys, it's pineapple time. Check out the pineapple strains online. 20% off. Massive sales all month of February. Check it out. Massive shout out to Seeds here now. Again, we love and your support. Thank you so much, Seeds here now. Likewise, a massive shout out to our friends at Pulse Sensors, all the best and latest sensors in the game, including their new Pulse Hub, which integrates all of their units together to ensure that your operation is on point, producing bigger yields, better terps, higher potency. Whether you're running a single tent, a single room, or a multi-state operation, Pulse are here to help you guys. Get serious, get a Pulse. Further shout out to Copa, the number one leaders in sustainable biocontrol solutions for pests and disease. If you're battling spider mites, please check out the Spidex Vital sachets. I can't tell you how annoying it is to have to spread carrier material in your garden just to get the predators out. These new sachets circumvent that. Just hang the sachets in your crop, let the personalists walk out, do the work for you. Trust me guys, you won't look back. If you give it one go, you will see the quality. You will be converted. A massive shout out to Copit. We appreciate your support so much. These guys are industry leaders. Check them out. Huge shout out to our friends at Organics Alive, number one for powdered organic fertilizers. If you're thinking about giving organics a go, get on board. Their products make it so easy. Whether you're in veg, transition, or bloom, they've got products that make it easy to dip your toes in the water. Likewise, if you're a seasoned veteran of organics, I promise their products will help take your next crop to a whole new level. Massive shout out to Organics Alive. They have some of the best products on the market. Really fast release because they're small particle size. You will not go wrong with Organics Alive. Hit them up. Massive shout out and thank you. Finally, a big shout out to our friends at Dynavap. Just a week or two ago, they came out with some new models, the Titanium M series in two different colors. You can get yourself the Nebulum or the Quantium. I've been rocking the Nebulum. I love it, guys. Please give it a go. If you've ever tried a vape and felt like it didn't hit the way you were looking for it, these ones will. Truly a game changer, based out of the US, owned in the US. Dynavap, truly one of the best vape companies on the market. I really, really love their products and we are super appreciative of their support. Massive shout out to Dynavap. Last but not least, massive shout out to the Patreon gang. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to help ensure the show continues to happen, please consider checking out patreon.com forward slash the podcast. You will get early access to upcoming episodes, unheard exclusive interviews, and you go in the running to win a whole range of swag each month. We give away genetics, cannabis artwork, a whole range of awesome products, all while ensuring the show continues to happen. 
Again, a massive shout out to the Patreon gang. We love you so, so, so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And that just about does it for this one. I'll see you for the next one. See you.